This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Man, I hope you're ready for a wonderful Thursday. It's a, you know, it's an important day, believe it or not. Helium Discovery Day. The day of all days when everyone can speak in a high voice, whether they want to or not. Like the mountains in springtime. <laughs> we will be listening to the, the, the oldies but the goodies, the great hits uh, through a little helium filter, I hope. Or did we really gas all these people up? Yeah. There was helium involved. Oh, my heavens. We put them in a gas chamber, and we're going to be singing a bunch of wonderful tunes. Hey, we've got a great show for you today. Uh, Ed Eyestone, former Olympian, current head coach at uh, track and field here at Brigham Young University. Guess what? We're going to have him on the phone from Rio talking with us about uh, giving us a little live update of what's going on down in Rio. He is there with a um, U.S. Uh, marathoner. Uh, Jared Ward, who also was from Brigham Young University. And by golly, we're going to find out what it's like to be in Rio. Let uh, Ed Eyestone compare it to his Olympic Games when he competed for the marathon in Seoul, Korea, and in Barcelona, Spain. We'll t- be talking to him in just a few minutes. We've also, we're going to be talking about Trump. Apparently, they're cleaning house, even though they don't need to, right? The campaign's doing wonderful, except we're going to change all of the leadership. Just add two or three more positions. So we'll be getting to all of those headlines soon as well. But first, let's get to Sadie Nielsen with the headlines. Sadie, what's going on around the rest of the country? Olympic officials said Wednesday evening that two American swimmers who were allegedly held up at gunpoint last week in Rio were removed by Brazilian authorities from their flight back to the United States. Jack Conger and Gunnar Bentz were taken off a plane at the Rio International Airport. And investigators from Rio's tourism police requested their passports to be seized so they could be questioned. Gold medalist Ryan Lochte said that early Sunday he was riding in a taxi with Conger and Bentz and another teammate when they were robbed at gunpoint by men who said they were police officers. Investigators said they have been unable to recover, unable to uncover evidence collaborating the story. Phoenix Maryville neighborhood, where a serial killer is on the loose, has suffered another shooting death. Police say a man found dead outside the home Thursday night was likely shot at a short distance away, but then made it to the house and collapsed around 10 p.m. Police aren't sure where exactly the man was, sh- the man was shot, but they did find shell casings. It's also not clear if the murder is linked to Phoenix serial, sh- serial shooter accused of killing seven people and injuring two others since March. Donald Trump said he's wary of U.S. intelligence, um, despite the fact that as a Republican presidential nominee, he'll begin receiving intelligence briefings Wednesday morning. On Tuesday night, Trump admitted he doesn't really trust intelligence from the people that have been doing it for our country. I mean, look what's happened over the last 10 years, he told Fox News. And finally, a Texas cowboy fresh off a successful day at the rodeo celebrated his victory by riding his horse into the dining area of a Taco Bell. Lanthan Crump posted a video to Instagram showing him riding his horse into the Commerce Eatery, eliciting laughter from friends and strangers dining inside the fast food restaurant. Crump said he had just finished a tie-down calf roping event at the Commerce Rodeo when he headed to Taco Bell for his traditional post-rodeo meal with a horse 
Um, he is named <laughs> Hollywood. His horse is named Hollywood. His horse is named Hollywood. But who doesn't have a little post-rodeo meal at Taco Bell? That's where we all go after the roundup. Well done, Sadie. Crazy uh, news in Trumpville. And it seems like, you you know, it seems like about 84 days or whatever it is out from the big election, you wouldn't be adding a lot of new leadership. Right, Terry? I mean, yeah, you, you think you'd have your ducks in a row, you're ready yeah. to go. I mean, I wouldn't call them ducks, but well, yeah. All of a sudden, though, Donald's changing his team leadership. Paul Manafort is For the third time in eight weeks. Interesting, right? So you're, you're about to hire the CEO of the company or the country. And is Donald Trump the CEO you want to have? It seems like he keeps hiring more and more leaders. Well, he said he's going to hire good people. Well, he is, I guess. Yeah. He just it, keeps doing it over and over and over yeah. again. And at the last minute. We, we need to have these positions solidified, it seems like. It also seems like if you're running a campaign, you would want somebody to run the campaign that's run a campaign. Yes. Paul that's... Manafort had run a campaign, I guess, years ago. Yeah, pre-internet. This was the same Paul Manafort that is now in trouble because he has very close ties to oligarchs from Russia. <laughs> yeah. Which, honestly... Okay, but they're making a big deal about it. I get it. I get it, you know, especially because the Russians seem to be hacking every Democratic, you know, organization. And possibly the NSA recently, as of yesterday. Yeah, that seems crazy. Um, But in the end, you got Manafort still retaining his position. But then they brought brought in um, Steve Bannon, who was Breitbart's... Still is. Uh, uh, publisher? What do they call him? His the senior it, editorial leader of Breitbart. Breitbart is his baby. Which many don't know necessarily that Bright, I mean, Breitbart's about as conservative of a press organization as can exist. Yes. So you have ba- basically the most conservative news organization in the country now on the Trump campaign. Bannon, in an interview, he has a podcast associated with Breitbart. He interviewed Trump several months ago, and he says that uh, Paul Ryan and Mitt Romney are basically equal to Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. They're that And Trump's like, yeah, Republicans should know this. Mm-hmm. You're like, okay. Crazy. <laughs> so in the end, what Trump is doing apparently is trying to double down on the conservative vote by bringing in a conservative uh I don't know what we call him, administrator, leader, uh, over a, a very conservative journal. Yes. He, he's also bringing in some other team members that, that are just taking different positions like, I, I, I mean, I don't even know what we're calling these people anymore, managers, directors, they, all these yeah. different titles. They make a new job and bring in more people. There was a table yesterday where they had a, a photograph of Trump with his security team. And there was like 30 people around this table. Oh, yeah. Manafort was there. His national security Steve Bannon was, was there. His new advisor, who was like a speechwriter, but now she's going to be oh, with Ke- him. Kellyanne Conway, who's go. a pollster. And by the way, she's the one that seems to be getting the most positive attention because finally a female spokesperson that actually is a pollster. And she'll be on the campaign trail with him. 
Oh, good. There's never been a, a real like senior advisor with him when he's out in public. Oh, great. So she'll be there. So people think maybe yeah. they'll help. But at the same time, they think this is Trump focusing more on a bare knuckles approach to the next few mm-hmm. months rather than a uh, the approach that the Republicans would like to see. Um, in fact, there, this is really kind of, I guess, Trump 3.0, 4.0. Um, and they, they have a new spokesman as well, Michael Cohen, who yesterday had a little run in day, day one, really, with, with one of the CNN reporters. You guys are down. And it makes Says sense who? that there would. Says polls, who? Most of them. All of them? Says who? Polls. I just told you, I answered your question. Okay. Which polls? All of them. Okay. And your okay. question is? <laughs> now, his his disagreement with what she was saying, yeah. which is why that was awkward, was he feels, as the Trump campaign does, is most of the polls are biased. They're anti-Trump. Especially in the sense that there's, if you say there's, say, 10 polls, and nine of them say that he's behind. Yeah. And so they're, they're, they have a bias, and they, they point to the crowd showing up to the campaign rallies as proof that Trump has... Right. Just lots of support that the the polling isn't showing. <sighs> yeah. Mm. Well. And and you if you look up uh, real clear politics, you can see how far behind he is. Yeah, ten points in like many 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 states. And, and he's close in Arizona where he shouldn't be close. Yeah. He should be dominating Arizona, but, but he's, and maybe not not as close as he should be in a state like Utah. He, he's losing ground in Colorado. Like it was 6 points, I think they pushed it out to 9 overnight. I thought I read somewhere. I just it, the numbers keep getting worse and worse for Trump. But he's not doing worse. He just he's just Says restructuring who? his Says who? Says who? <laughs> Says who? He's just restructuring. Yeah. He's just restructuring his leadership. Says who? <laughs> Go all day with this. Uh, all the polls. What no. polls? All of them. So mm. this from the Washington Post, it says, stunning, uh, Trump's stunning uh, decision effectively ended the months-long push by campaign chairman Paul Manafort to moderate Trump's presentation and pitch for the general election. And it sent a signal, perhaps, or more clear than ever, that the real estate mogul tends to finish this race in his own terms with friends who share his instincts at his side. While Trump re- uh, respects Manafort, the aide said he has grown to feel boxed in and controlled by people who he barely knows. Moving forward, he plans to focus intensely on rousing his voters at rallies and through media appearances. Okay. But here, here's the dilemma. I uh-huh. think it was Florida. Hillary Clinton has nine or ten offices in florida right donald has one office in florida the whole state you have to move voters to vote on the ground level and he's not in on the ground level there was a i can't remember where it was there's a there's a county in pennsylvania that was a key county obama had like nine offices in that region romney at this point last year had about six trump has zero yeah and I think CNN went there uh, with Anderson Cooper the other night. It's like, this is a key county, and Trump has absolutely no presence. And this is why Barack Obama won two terms and apparently might win a third via Hillary because he has ground game, and the ground game turned out the vote. And if you turn out your vote, 
and there's and you're organized, you will have an op- you'll have an opportunity at this. This is the problem with hiring all of these great experts, supposed experts, none of which have ever run a national presidential campaign. Another side of this, Trump. If you think back to June, Vanity Fair, I, we talked about it on the air. They put out a report saying that Trump was considering creating his own media business built on the audience that supports him thus far in his bid to become president. Right. Yeah. So now he's got the Breitbart guy. Sure. Roger Ailes is floating around. He was with him in, in the Hamptons, according <laughs> to on. reports. Not the Roger Ailes that was run out of Fox News <laughs> yes. because of, yeah. So he's surrounding himself with these people who know how to build but, media companies. But here is the thing. Roger Ailes is a genius, historically, at being able to help people win. Yes. He's also seen as dirty, <laughs> as dark. According as, to who? <laughs> who? Says who? Says who? Says who? <laughs> Says who? I don't know. I, about 12 women at Fox News. Who are they? Who? Who? Like, I don't know, Megyn Kelly. Did they sign contracts? Keep <laughs> yeah. working there? They're still there. They didn't complain until they didn't have a contract. But here's the good news. So there's not a problem in Trumpville. And, uh, but Hillary did want to like at least give her opinion of what's going on with Donald's redo. He can hire and fire anybody he wants from his campaign. They can make him read new words from a teleprompter. But he is still the same man who insults Gold Star families, demeans women, mocks people with disabilities, and thinks he knows more about ISIS than our generals. There is no new Donald Trump. This is it. Says who? Who says who? (laughs) Whatever argument you make, says who? Says who? Says Hillary Clinton. (laughs) Who's she? Wow. That interview with that lawyer on CNN last night was so awkward because she goes, uh, all the polls. And he went, and it was this long pause. And he goes, says who? Okay. <laughs> okay. So, okay. So at least we got our, we, at least we know where we're coming from. And that's just encapsulates. So you're talking all the polls. <laughs> that encapsulates Trump's approach so far yeah. is that, eh, it's negative. It doesn't matter to me. Well, you're hiring a CEO. Right. And so if you just look at the CEO job being done by Donald, forget Hillary. Mm-hmm. If you just look at the, the CEO job being done by Donald, is it attractive to you? You're 80 something days out. You don't necessarily have ground game going on. Down ballot tickets are begging you to just begging the RNC to get only give the money to them. No longer put any money into Trump. Mm. He hasn't unified the party necessarily. He's restacking the deck. His top dog, who replaced his other top dog because his other top dog was out of control. So he replaced him with Matt. Lewandowski's gone. Manafort comes in. Manafort then has Ukrainian ties or whatever, which, by the way, is the exact same parallel story as Global Clinton Global Initiative. Yeah, absolutely. And no one's pay for looking play, at that. and no one talks about that. No. Manafort got seven and a half million or whatever paid through another business that he's a part of. Right. Anyway, which it, CEO it, do you trust? It is interesting. Both campaigns parallel some of their uh, their controversies. It's but, crazy, but no one wants to talk about Hillary Clinton's well, this, problems. And it totally. And again, even if they, even if Donald and Hillary are exactly the same person, Hillary has still built a better system. Yes. But she also had, what, eight years to do it? Or most of her life, depending yeah. on who you talk to. <laughs> Crazy, folks. Crazy. So, uh, what do you do? What do you do? Be careful. Just 
You got time. Don't have to decide now. Something else is going to happen, believe me. We are still two or three complete redos, uh, more redos of the uh, Donald Trump campaign. And we'll, we'll have one every month of it. Keep shaking it up. Maybe that'll change something. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we will be going straight to Rio, talking with BYU's uh, track coach, Ed Eyestone. What an honor. Olympian himself. We're going to get an update straight from Brazil. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, the Rio Olympics have already shown us what happens when athletes push themselves to their limits. But the race that is the greatest test of endurance is yet to be run. On Sunday, former BYU athlete Jared uh, Ward will be competing in the Olympic marathon. Here to talk to us uh, about Jared Ward and also just the Olympics in general is uh, Jared's coach, Ed Eyestone, former Olympian, two-time Olympian, by the way, and also track and field head coach and men's cross-country head coach for Brigham Young University. Ed Eyestone, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Matt, great to be here. And we're actually uh, speaking, I'm currently at the base of Corcovado right now. So wow, expansive view of Rio, and I'm glad that uh, we're getting some cell phone reception. That's cool, too. <laughs> it's neat that you had to run to a mountain to go find cell phone coverage. <laughs> yeah, well, it, and it's been, it's been great here. And, you know, anytime Olympics is taking place, there's just so many people and such good, uh, you know, friendships that you're making on a daily basis with all these random people from, mm-hmm. uh, from uh, Brazil or, um, uh, you know, where, wherever it is, whatever uh, people you happen to be sitting next to at these venues. And, uh, and it's been great so far. It's been a great two weeks. Now, now Ed, you're with Jared Ward. Do you get to stay in the village with Jared? No, I'm not in the village. In fact, uh, I brought uh, a daughter who j- had just graduated from PA school as kind of a graduation present along oh, with great. me. Yeah. And uh, so we've been staying at just an Airbnb in El Centro, <laughs> which is kind of the downtown area, uh, but a short metro away from Copacabana, Ipanema. Oh, neat. And a lot of the other sites around. What a great present. Is she now? Hopefully, you won't need her services as a PA. <laughs> no. So far, so far, there has not not been any Zika uh, problems, and uh, I think the worst we've had is somebody had a a minor uh, food funk uh, oh, from a they? time when we uh, weren't able to eat uh, within about six or seven hours. Oh but, boy! Uh, yeah, no, all all is well. We've been having a great time. That's great. Talk to us about. Um the Olympic spirit, you were a participant in two uh, Olympiads, uh, 1988 Seoul, Korea, 1992 Barcelona, Spain games, where you finished 13th in the Olympic marathon. It just what's the spirit like? Uh, we, we can only see kind of the television version of it, but, but what, what does it feel like, you know, walking into these stadiums and watching some of these events? Well, like you say, I think there's a real... Um an awesome, amazing feeling of just kind of brotherhood and sisterhood of the world coming together. You know, we need more games and less war, obviously, and I think that's why Pierre de Coubertin, you know, put this together in the late 1800s. And certainly there are the rivalries between the countries, and there's uh, plenty of cheering 
Uh, and the, the Brazilian fans are just rabid, rabid, very vocal. Right. And will cheer their little lungs out when any time they're, they have an athlete that's, uh, you know, competing. Uh, and occasionally they're not against, uh, you know, the boom, boom mentality, mm-hmm. the opposition that came into play in the finals of the uh, pole vault where they had um, a guy who was uh, going against the uh, Olympic champion, a French uh, man in the pole vault that came down to those last two. And you don't a lot of times hear booing uh, for the uh, opponents in track and field, but we got a little bit of that. Uh, but I think it's all kind of that uh, soccer mentality, and it's been really, really fun, uh, really positive experience. And uh, the Brazilian people have really rolled out the red carpet, and uh, I think have done a phenomenal job. I don't know how it's being portrayed back at home, yeah. but we've had nothing but good uh, feelings, good experiences wherever we, we go. Uh, amazing, the you know the younger people will. Uh, you know, it's not one of those countries where everybody speaks English, certainly, uh, but you can usually navigate. Fortunately, I speak, I speak some Spanish still, and uh, between Spanish and, and those that, uh, the little English that they know, you can really get around, uh, and never have we felt uh, lost or uh, that we can't uh, find an answer to a question. So it's been great. So the country, the, you, you, the country's great. I mean, I, we had the Olympics here in Utah, and there's, there is an incredible spirit. Oh, yeah. You remember? And it's... You try yep. to serve everybody. You try to get out of yourself. There was a little bit of a, you know, a, a little bit of attention given to the pole vaulter because he was he was emotional. He was crying during the national anthem as he had been booed. But you know what I'm worried about uh, most, Ed, is you've got to go talk to those swimmers because uh, it sounds like our swim team is in a little bit of trouble with the law over there. Well, you know what, and I hadn't heard a lot of that other than on the van ride up to the base of Corcovado. <laughs> Uh, some ladies were talking. I had heard initially in the week that, oh, horrible thing, you know, some uh, swimmers have been pulled over and at gunpoint robbed. And then uh, it, it was the first that I had heard uh, this afternoon or this morning as we were driving up to Corcovado that they said, well, it sounds like there's a lot more to that yeah. story. And apparently they had falsified some of the stuff they were saying. They're being held over and whatnot. You know what? That happens. Again, that yeah. happens at every game. That's not the uh, game. Shenan- shenanigans take place. Uh, I remember in, in uh, 1988, Seoul, Korea, one of the swimmers, I think, uh, leaving a fancy restaurant, picked up a kind of priceless heirloom uh, vase and was and moved it and ended up getting uh, jailed and oh, wow. sent home on the next on the next uh, plane home. So things happen, um, but uh, you get together, you know, thousands of young. Uh, people at their at the height of their athletic prowess, and there's always going to be poor decisions that are made. Right. Uh, hopefully, hopefully it doesn't cause an international incident in the process. <laughs> That's so true. Uh, yeah. But, but I think that by and large, there's a lot more positive stories than negatives coming out of the games. Uh, at least what I've witnessed. Hey Ed, what do you see? Um, you having competed twice. What What do you as you look at Jared Ward ready to run the marathon this Sunday? How's he doing? Is he is he in good shape? Is he in good form? Yeah, yeah, he really is. I would say that given his training and build-up leading up to this race relative to the amazing races that he's had post-collegiately, that he is better prepared for this one than the others that he has done well in. I mean, when he made the uh when he won the or when he made the Olympic team, finishing third at the Olympic trials, I think up to that point it was probably his best effort uh against you know real quality competition in uh kind of hot and 
hot conditions. And I think he's going to, he's in every bit as good a shape as that. And all you can ask going into these events is you don't necessarily, um, you know, uh, expect to uh, run better than what you are capable of, but you want to run to the best of your ability. And I think his preparation has served him well. The other thing that has served him well is that he's, um, uh, you know, he's a very um, methodical and uh, he has a master's degree in statistics. He is an adjunct professor at BYU in the stats department. Hmm. So he uh, can, can kind of break down a race and knows Technic, from a technical standpoint, okay, uh, how to execute this game plan to the best of his ability to get the totally maximize out his abilities and his fitness level. Uh, and so I think those are some of his strengths. Um, the weather has been off and on. You know, some days it's uh, it's been in the high 80s, and then other days, you know, we've had rain kind of move in. And he has uh, demonstrated that he can run very well in hot conditions. Um, although the weather forecast looks like we may be on the cooler side of things. So either way, we'll come up with a plan that will uh, maximize his strengths and hopefully take advantage of opponents' weaknesses and uh, you know, put him in the, in the best possible light. Now, he's running against some East Africans who have personal best times that are you know, four to five minutes faster than his. Wow. And so what you don't worry about that, you, can, you control the controllable, and you run the very best race that you feel like you can, and you know deep down inside that others are also going to rise to the occasion, but then many will crumble under the pressure yeah. of the occasion. Uh, and if you do your very best, and, and uh, that then you feel like you know, things are going to work out to the best, uh, best possible solution uh, as, as can be. And if he does that, I think then he has a, t- a chance. Um, you know, and I, I think... Uh, uh, certainly a top 10 performance I think we would be happy with top six I think is a stretch is a stretch goal that he can certainly accomplish but then you, when you talk, start talking about top six then you go well why not okay, if uh, <laughs> some crazy things happen then, then why not get on the oh, award style but uh, so it, it's going to be exciting and he's well prepared and I think he's he's uh, savvy enough to um, especially these last few days leading up to the race itself. He's savvy enough to know that uh, the time to see the sights is, is passed now, and now yeah. he's just going to be resting up and getting ready and uh, for his uh, hopefully the race of his life. What does it do uh, on Sunday? What, what does it do to his game when he's he's not in his routine? He's not in his same country. He's not even probably having the same breakfast he would. His wife is pregnant back home. Two kids not hanging on his legs, and. Uh, he he and his wife was his masseuse. I mean, it seems like right. It's an uphill battle. Well, there's there's no doubt you're not in your uh, in your routine, and the fact that he's been over here for as long as he has been can be exhausted, exhausting. But um, the bottom line is, you know, he can he can be cool, calm, and collected, kicking back in his uh, room in the Olympic Village and avoid a lot of the nonsense that's uh, going on. About and when I say nonsense, I mean in terms of preparing for a marathon, uh, you know, running around and, and climbing to the top of Corcovado uh, like his coach did today, this morning. Uh, he's more in, uh, in race mode, and uh, as such, he's used to going to big uh, city marathons, and there's a lot of, um, you know, hotel, quality hotel time 
that you do leading up to the competition. Is that and yeah? He's focused in on and he's focused in on that right now, so he'll be fine. That's cool. He, I guess, he got to meet uh, Durant um, and uh, the basketball player. My is Devin, not Devin Durant. That's the BYU Kevin, player. Kevin. Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant. And uh, Kevin came up and made a comment about his stash. Yeah, I gave him a shout out on his. He says, "Nice stash, bro." <laughs> That's cool. Uh, and so I think he's feeling good about that. And then he got some. I think he got some good screen time and opening ceremonies while they were doing the Olympic anthem as well. Oh, so, great! Uh, that that's all good. So he's got some good, uh, good um, media, media karma going. Yeah. So hopefully uh, he can continue with that. And um, you know, again, he, I think he was able to enjoy the first uh, week of, of of being here in the games, and now. This uh, this last week before the race, he he knows what he's got to do. You know, we've we've had a couple of key workouts uh, that have have gone well here. Uh, the U.S. basically constructed the USA track and field basically constructed um, Mondo high uh, um, quality track at uh, the Brazilian Naval Academy that's uh, here in the city, and so. Um, we've been able to do some workouts on that, and uh, you know he looks great. Now Ed, you've done this, so um, what's what as just an athlete? What's going through your head? He was here like 17 days early, I believe. Jared was. What's going through your head? Maybe Friday, Saturday, when you know you've got to compete Sunday. Is he nervous to compete? He's run many a mile. Uh, this each, you know, it's going to pretty much feel the same, won't it? Yeah, I think you just kind of uh, try to forget uh, that it's the Olympic Games. It's funny, I had a, a colleague who was a very good uh, multiple Olympian, uh, and we were talking at the Olympics in 1992 in Barcelona. She was saying, you know, I used to always tell, and she ran uh, for Wisconsin. Uh, University of Wisconsin was a multi, multi uh, national champion and All American. And she said, and then ran a real important team leader, and she said, you know, Ed, it's kind of interesting. We were talking one morning at the Olympic Village for breakfast before her competition. She said, in, back in college, they would always turn to me and say, um, you know, Susie, what, what am I supposed to do here? Because uh, we're so nervous. Uh, you know, it's a conference meet or whatever. And I, she said, I would always turn to them and just say, just relax. It's not as if it's the Olympics. It's not as if it's the Olympics or anything. Wow. What uh, what stands out for the whole Olympics? What moments stand out for you as, as a post-Olympian, but coach, and also just a motivator, somebody that has to go motivate your track team? Well, I, I, I love track and field, obviously. That's what I do. That's what I did. Uh, so going to the track and seeing an American, Clayton Murphy, uh, who was uh, – a uh, very good friend of Shaquille Walker, so I knew him quite well. See him uh, win a bronze medal in the 800 meters, that was very fun. We went to the track two nights ago, and we watched Evan Jaeger in the uh, steeplechase win a silver medal. Uh, that was great. Uh, and, um, you know, so, so all those things were fun. But then also to go to, to some random sports like uh, – you know, team handball, hmm. uh, or uh, and then we watched the the U.S. Um, basketball team uh, win a close one against Serbia uh, by three points. Uh, we saw some what is a double synchronized diving <laughs> of all things uh, that I didn't think I would ever see, but uh, you know, and you appreciate them all. Uh, and some very you know, I watched the U.S. volleyball team play yesterday. And sometimes it's it's fun because you're going and you're watching 
uh, you know, your own country uh, compete. And other times you do just kind of random things. We went to some boxing. We saw some women's boxing. And, oh, wow. And not a U.S. Cool. competitor in that particular weight category, but just uh, good to kind of see the different cultures. And you, we get so immersed in the specific sport culture that you're in, a lot of times you, re- you forget that there are people just as um, emphatic and r- religious about, uh, you know, mixed pairs of badminton as there is uh, track, track and field. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so I think all, all of that is kind of the, the fun, along with the overriding feeling that, you know, one of the Olympic themes is the most important thing of the Olympic Games is not to win but to take part, just as the most important thing in life is not the victory but the struggle. And so I think uh, you see that on a daily basis in the venues, and I think you see that uh, with the volunteers here in, in Brazil. They're just trying to do the best job possible that they can as they struggle through this these games and uh, and in, enjoy it all the way through Sunday. Oh, man, I love that, too. That, And I think it's important that you're bringing it up because we see it one way, and, you know, a lot of the world's upset about how they treated the pole vaulter. But, again, it's just the enthusiasm and the excitement of being on the big stage. It's it's probably taking over. Yeah, and, and, and that, to me, was... I mean, I don't know what the media said about the pole. I, I just mentioned it from my side because I was there. But it wasn't as if they were throwing things at yeah, the guy or right. something. There was, there was a bit of a chorus of booze, but it was not like the entire stadium uh, was up in arms. Uh, I mean, it was nothing that you wouldn't – I mean, you've been to a BYU football game before, oh, right? yeah, ugly. <laughs> Have you ever seen a bad call? <laughs> it was nothing like that. You know, it was, it was nothing like the chorus of booze that comes from our own Cougar fans. Right. Things don't go our way. It was more just a – undertone of a few people and a few whistles and uh it carried the day and you don't usually see it in track and field uh but i think the the french athlete kind of made a mistake because he kind of did a thumbs down as yeah. he, uh, to the crowd to the crowd before his last attempt and hey anytime you let i mean when was the last time you went to a basketball game and you didn't hear a thunderous booze when the guy was up uh, right. trying to make a winning free throw i mean that's just part of the game and if you acknowledge that, if you're on the free throw line and you acknowledge, oh, don't boo me, then you've already lost. <laughs> yeah. And I think when we saw the French guy do the thumbs down, I went, he's going to miss this one. <laughs> you um, knew it, didn't you? So, so I don't think it's, uh, no, I think the people are just being people. Uh, and it's been, you know, the, the Brazilians have been great hosts and uh, are you know, we're having a great time here. Hey, Ed, you might want to go tell them uh, – Maybe help them fix that green pool problem they're having. Well, the green pool, the lime green, it looked like kind of Gatorade when the day that we went. Um, and I, I should also say we saw some amazing uh, swimming. Uh, we, we saw Michael Phelps win one of his silver medals. Oh, did medals you really? That he got, got beat by the, um, what was it, Singapore? The, yeah, yeah, I think yeah, the, yeah, it was. Beat by the athlete from Singapore. And what was cool about that is we were standing, in fact, when we sat in our seats, we were at the railing, and we had a Singapore flag that had been kind of tied right in front of what we would be looking through. And so we lowered it, you know, one rung so we could see through it. And so uh, the guys from Singapore were right next to us and apologetic. But uh. then we began this conversation. They had basically spent their life uh, earnings to come watch this kid from Singapore try to win the first gold medal. How cool. Ever. I think it was I think it was the first gold medal ever yeah. for uh, Singapore. Um, and um, you know, they didn't know him but he had they had a picture of, of him on his phone of um, 
of this uh, swimmer from Singapore and Michael Phelps, you know, eight years ago or 12 years ago or whatever, uh, when he was just a little boy. And uh, the fact that they had come, you know, they essentially spent all they had so that they could see this potential. You know, we were certainly seeing it, uh, cheering for Singapore before it was all done. And to yeah. see the joy that uh, and uh, national pride that came through with those two guys and, and the other Singapore uh, fans in the crowd was really something to see firsthand. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, so, so that night of swimming, even though it wasn't in a little bit of green water, uh, was a, was a great night uh, for us as well. It's also interesting just how the story matters, right? Knowing the story and the background and the context of each player, um, it, it makes it does make it a world event instead of just America versus Singapore. Yeah, it does, and and uh, and every athlete has a story that's probably just as compelling. Yeah, uh, and unfortunately, we can't hear all those stories. But one of the joys of the Olympic Games that I'm learning as, uh, you know, because I'm essentially a coach for uh, one athlete here, um, but I am kind of a fan taking it all in. So is you get to meet these people just on the, you know, metro-wide ride when a Brazilian uh, family sees you're kind of looking up, not exactly sure. He asks you in broken English. You communicate in Spanish and broken English Hmm. uh, in a third language for, you know, second language for both of you. you know, how to get there. And by the end of the uh, Metro ride, you're, you know, fast friends with them, uh, sharing pictures and uh, become Facebook friends and can kind of track each other. That's why I think the Olympics is an important uh, movement to be behind and to continue to support uh, because it does, uh, at the end of the line, end of the day, it just helps us all know that we have a lot more in common than, uh, than not in common. And uh, if uh, as we do that, then I think it's going to be a lot easier uh, for us all to coexist. Love it, man. I, Ed, we appreciate you. I think that's a perfect way to end it. Is we, there's this is a way to create a brotherhood in the in the rest of with the rest of the world, and you know improve our improve our skills and our abilities, but really to connect. Ed Eystone, thank you so much for your time. Good luck with your daughter and with Jared Ward as he runs Sunday. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. It'll be it'll be a fun race, and I'm sure he'll represent BYU and his uh, home state uh, well. Thank you. Thank you, Ed Eystone. Man, how great is that? Head coach for track and field and men's cross country at Brigham Young University in Rio to help uh, Jared Ward run the marathon this Sunday. The goal, apparently, top ten finish if they can do it. Man, top six. Woo! Big time. That'd be way cool. So we're behind you. We'll take a break, folks. That gives you a good spirit, a little good feeling there about what's going on there in Rio. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, the U.S. is still at the top of the charts for the most Olympic gold medals and medals overall. But maybe it's not all about, you know, how good our athletes are, but how many there are. There are a lot of countries we are competing against that seem to get lost in the shadows because they only have one or two athletes competing to represent their entire country. Our producer, Leanna Tan, is going to bring some of those lesser-known countries to light and teach us some of the traditional sports played in the countries that had the least amount of athletes competing in the Olympics this year. 
Does anyone else feel like flipping off a diving board or doing front handsprings while they watch the Olympics? All this hype about the Olympics has really inspired me to channel my inner Olympian. Safely win this time and Bolt is into his stride. Wouldn't it be cool to have all that fame and glory of an Olympian, of knowing you are the best athlete in your entire country? Michael Phelps, extraordinary yet again. Well, I was looking at the statistics and the U.S. has more athletes competing than like three-fourths of the competing countries combined this year. We have 554 athletes competing. Looks like we've got plenty of representatives already. Every American seems like they're trying to be an athlete. The best gymnast of all time. And my chances of being the best American Olympian seem pretty slim. She hasn't lost a competition in three years. So I guess if I want to become an Olympian, I'll just have to move to one of those ambiguous countries that only have like one or two competing athletes. Some people say you know them can't believe. I mean, I bet they're recruiting so they can send more representatives to the Olympics next time, right? So, I found the bottom seven countries in terms of how many athletes they have competing. And with the help of my friend Wikipedia and TopEndSports.com, I researched what kind of traditional sports they play in those countries. You know, so I can begin my training. These countries grow up doing some pretty interesting athletics. Very interesting. Bhutan. They have this sport called digor, which is played with a pair of spherical flat stones that are hurled at two targets fixed in the ground at a distance of about 20 meters apart. I'm just trying to picture how something can be spherical and flat. Anyway, I was never one to throw rocks as a child, but I've skipped a few stones in my day. Two! Tuvalu. Tuvalu's national sport is Teana, which apparently is played with two hard round balls made from pandanus leaves and has rules very similar to volleyball. The game starts with two teams lining up facing each other on a field. Most of the team stands in rows behind two central players, the captain and the catcher. Competition begins with one player throwing the ball towards the other team who must hit it back with their hands. Only the designated catcher is allowed to catch the ball, and the receiving team has to keep the ball off the ground. The first team to reach 10 points wins. Three! Mauritania. Here, they play a game called Slam Ball, which is a form of basketball played with four trampolines in front of each net and boards around the court edge. Yes! Great! I grew up with a trampoline in my backyard, so I'm already ahead of the game. Four! Dominica. Dominica's national sport is cricket. Switch to cricket and get a... Not to be confused with a cell phone service provider or the scrapbooking tool. No, it's a bat and ball game played between two teams of 11 players on a cricket field, at the center of which is a rectangular 22-yard long pitch with a wicket. Sticky wicket. A set of three wooden stumps sighted at each end. One team, designated the batting team, attempts to score as many runs as possible. Hey! while their opponents are playing on the field. Each phase of the play is called an inning. Sounds a lot like baseball. And baseball sounds a lot like softball. And there was that one time in elementary where they made me be the pitcher for our sixth grade class. Definitely counts. Five! Somalia. In Somalia, they play bandy, which is a team winter sport played on ice. Stars in igloos and Eskimos and penguins and ice, possibly. 
See you. In which skaters use sticks to direct a ball into the opposing team's goal. The sport is considered a form of hockey and has common background with ice hockey and field hockey. Perfect. I mean, one time my friends and I got together and used our kitchen brooms and wadded up socks to play hockey in an empty room on campus. I think I could handle it. Six. Swaziland. A popular sport in this country is lawn bowls. Lawn bowlers wear white, though I have no idea why. And I guess this isn't bowling on your lawn. Dang it, because I could probably figure that out. This is a sport which the objective is to roll biased balls so they stop close to a smaller ball called a jack or kitty. It is played on a bowling green and normally played outdoors. Never played lawn bowls, but I gotta say, I kill it at wee bowling. <laughs> Nauru. A traditional sport in Nauru is catching birds when they return from a foraging at sea to the island towards sunset. The men then stand on the beach ready to throw their lasso. This lasso is a supple rope with a weight at the end. When a bird comes over, they throw their lasso up and it hits or drapes itself over the bird, which then falls down and is seized, and then they're roosted as pets. If I gotta choke down on one more of those moldy, disgusting crackers! Well, I've learned several things today. One, geography. I literally didn't even know some of these countries existed. And two, I've been trained to be an Olympian my entire life and I didn't even know it. I feel like I'm pretty much there. Gotta keep my options open, though, so I guess I'll be on the lookout for some spherical flat stones, birds, and pandanus leaves. But really, as I researched, I realized all I really need to do is practice my soccer and running skills. Then I can pretty much join any of the Olympic teams. So, happy Olympics, everyone. And remember to keep a close eye out for me in 2020. You might not recognize me with that gold medal around my neck. You win! Well, I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on this side. The show and the goal of the show is to help you get the information you need to live healthier, happier lives. Today, no exception. We'll be doing that because today is Helium Discovery Day. Ah, the day you learned to suck gas at a little at a young age to make and alter your voice. So you could speak high. It's also, by the way, and this is my favorite day, it's Serendipity Day. Serendipity. I don't think. I didn't know the song was called Serendipity Doodah Day. (laughs) Serendipity is the willingness to live your life as though everything is a miracle. With the belief that at any moment, something wonderful is about to happen. Like a talking bird landing on your shoulder. Serendipity Doodah. What a cool day. It is a great, I mean, if you could live with the idea of that every day is a miracle, everything in every day is just a miracle. That's too positive. Like, it's a miracle that we are even here today, Terry. Why? 
It's just miraculous. You think about that sometimes. You're driving down the freeway, and you're like, wow, there's all these cars. This is total basic. I mean, there's some rules, but it's essentially chaos. There's it's, massive semi-trucks, right? massive- uh, So much can go wrong. Yeah. And yet, here we sit. What a miracle. See? We just modeled Serendipity Day. We got a great show for you today. We will also be talking about a Roomba. What did we call this? Uh, a Roomba gone bad. One of those little Roomba house cleaners turned on its owner, folks. And we will be giving you, giving you some Roomba rules. If you have a pet, a dog, let's say, and a Roomba, can I just suggest one of them has to go? Because if a dog leaves a little present for a Roomba, Oof. it ain't going to be pretty. <laughs> oh, we'll get to that, folks. <sighs> Roomba torture. In just a minute, we'll also be talking um, about uh, uninformed electorate. You know? Why people seem to know so little about politics and what we can do about it. And you know what? I think... A lot of what we're experiencing in this election is because we have an uninformed electorate, by the way, with a lot of pain. I think a lot of it has to do with just avoiding negativity because a lot of politics comes back being negative. Yeah. And so people, they, 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 they already have that in their life. They don't need more of it. Right. They don't want to go watch it on the shows, except, you know, millions and millions of people listen to it on the radio shows, radio talk shows. They yeah. can't apparently get enough of it. But being an uninformed electorate, it's causing some problems, and we will be speaking with an expert on the very subject. Also uh, today, a lot of important news for you as well, um, just about – well, maybe not important for you, but it's It's important news. to someone. Yeah. There's so many things we can talk about on the show. Some of it's even important. Some of it's just funny, flat-out funny. We'll get to all of this um, coming up. But first, let's get to Sadie Nielsen with the news. Sadie? Mitt Romney is reportedly going to help Marco Rubio through private donor outreach as down-ballot races have been affected by Donald Trump's candidacy. The unfortunate truth about this election is that nobody's really happy. I shouldn't say nobody. Most Americans are not really happy with either outcome, either the Republican or Democrat outcome. But right now, Hillary's in the lead, Romney said on a call to potential donors. Fugitive Keith Jean fled into the sewer system of New Jersey two weeks ago after swimming across a river to get away from police, and there's been no sign of him since, uh, either inside or outside the sewer system. The chances of the 31-year-old still being in the system are slim. Officials say the outflow pipe he entered into leads to a network of cramped chambers that he would find potentially deadly gases. Robots have searched the tunnels and cadaver dogs have sniffed sewer grates, but they haven't found traces of Jean alive or dead. With an estimated 40,000 homes damaged by deadly flooding, Louisiana could be looking at its biggest housing crunch since the miserable, bumbling aftermath of Hurricane Katrina a decade ago. People are staying in shelters, bunking with friends or relatives, or sleeping in trailers on their front lawns. Others unable or unwilling to leave their homes are living amid mud and the risk of mold and steamy August heat. Exactly how many will need temporary housing is unclear, but the state officials are urging landlords to allow short-term leases and encouraging people to rent out any empty space. And finally, in your pizza news, 
A Florida judge banned a man from ordering pizza pizza delivery after he allegedly called more than $667 in losses with prank calls. The Indian River County Sheriff's Office said Randy Riddle, 49, was arrested on multiple counts of theft and making obscene or harassing phone calls. Riddle was was released after paying a $5,000 bail, but a judge ordered him to refrain from calling for pizza delivery as a condition of his release. Come on, man. So not cool. Not cool at all. That's You don't mess with a pizza line. Well done, Sadie. Yeah, pizza lines are, you know, you got to, they're 911 and pizza lines. Sacred. Are they on your speed dial, the pizza, yes. pizza line? Yes, they are. I'm starting to actually like pizza a lot less. Do you have restaurants on speed dial on your phone? No. I do. Oh, I have one. Yes. I have one, and then within that uh, entry, there's three locations. Really? So you call them to find out which one's not, not as busy and go there. You just drive there. Yeah. I think I know. Is yours Mexican? Oh, yeah. Yeah, mine's too. Are you really not going to tell us? No. But it rhymes with Rafa, Re- Rafa Brio. Yeah, it's more of a regional favorite, so most people probably would It's called wouldn't. Cafe Rio. Oh, there you go. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> it's so yummy. It's so good. Hey, uh, what do you do? The technology is incredible, really. Right? In many ways, it's revolutionizing life. Like, it's making it so things you don't even, that you don't want to do, you don't even have to do anymore. In fact, Ford made a big announcement in 2021, is it? Yes. 2021, so five years from now, they'll have a self-driving car for, I guess, Uber drivers. No steering wheel. What? Their plan is to have a car, no steering wheel, Uber, and then they, I guess they sell them to those types of companies like an Uber. Yeah. And they're able to have this vehicle, and you don't own a vehicle anymore, you share vehicles. Oh. I think... Which we'll see how that goes in five, six years. But that's kind of the idea. The problem with that is, like, in California, they have laws that says if you have an autonomous car, it must have a steering wheel and brakes and normal controls so the right. driver can take control of it. Won't that be great, though, the day you just put your kid in the car and send him to school? Yeah. You know, put him in, and he just sort of right. ends up where he needs to be. You don't, you'll you never need to go, you know, send you, take your husband to the airport. Hmm. No steering wheel? Isn't that kind of what the machines want? Yes. At that point, they take over and... See, what happens, though, when the machine takes over, there is no steering wheel and it starts to, you know, create havoc. And you're just boxed inside. (laughs) Okay, well, we have a similar scenario. The Roomba, and this could happen with any brand of kind of robotic house cleaner. Right. But the Roomba is the name brand that, that people, you know, talk about. And it is the Kleenex of automatic cleaners, it you is the, say. Exactly. The Kleenex of automatic cleaning. And the problem is Roomba, what a great idea. This cute little Roomba little robot goes around your house, does these weird zigzag patterns, and eventually cleans your entire floor. But you have to have hard floors, I think. Or low-pile carpet. Or low-pile carpet. Well... What happens when, as an owner of the home, you don't know that your dog had a little accident? 
with pets, it works well because they shed, right? There's dog hair, right. cat hair. And so if you constantly have this thing that goes around and right. picks things up, then you kind of control that during the week. And then you could do like one day where you go and you know take the Some vacuum out and go crazy. Yeah. yeah. But daily cleaning, it works well. But yeah, if the animal has an accident, what happens? Well, what happens is the the poor Roomba's not... Not really equipped. It's for not that. equipped for that. It's not designed to identify pet accidents. There's no scooper attachment. Yeah. Or like, what if somebody else gets sick? I mean, what if I don't know. Yeah. What if somebody spills juice or wine or whatever? Exactly. And what does the Roomba do? So there was a major uh, news story out, um, and so we decided to send our own Shik Shumway, one of our our top reporters, to go investigate the story of the Roomba. They call it the 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 poopocalypse. That's hard to say. And uh, so here's Shik Shumway helping us understand. An Arkansas father will not be charged in the killing of his robotic vacuum cleaner. Jesse Newton says he feels his actions were justified. I had to put him down. I had to. I mean, I've got kids. Newton ended the Roomba's brief existence after it ran over dog doo-doo and dragged it around the living room. A spokesperson for Roomba said that this is the number two problem they've been having with the modern cleaning marvel. Rudy, that's what we called our Roomba, that was not Rudy. The Rudy we knew would never have done something like this. Hammaker Schlemmer has offered to replace little Rudy, but Newton is too horrified to accept the offer. I can still hear the humming, see the blinking lights, the horror. Now, some of our listeners may hear this story and dismiss it as an unfortunate occurrence. However, we spoke with our chief conspiracy correspondent, Hop Speedman, who believes this was just the precursor to something bigger. If you take a close look at the crime scene photos, you'll see there's a pattern to the Roomba's tracks. The tracks clearly spell out blurn, which as we all know in robot language means death to humans, man. So clearly Rudy was planning something diabolical, maybe by himself, but most likely he was in league with other Roombas. And this is just the beginning. For years now, I've been warning the public about the inevitable robopocalypse, and if you can't see that, then you've got blinders on, man. As a journalist, it is my duty to remain impartial. However, in this case, I feel it is my duty as a human being to leave you with this vital advice. The next time one of your socks goes missing, when an heirloom vase shatters, or when you find the toilet seat is up, Take a look at your Roomba, or any one of your many appliances, and then look again. Machines. They're everywhere, folks. Watching and waiting. Until next time, this is Shik Shumway. Thank you, Shik. Wow. Uh, shining a light on, a, a, I think, a, a hidden problem that many of us may be overlooking. He, he made a few incredible points that I, I think need to be, you know, focused on. One is, you know, there are a lot of machines out there. <laughs> that's, that's just a great point. Um, and I had no idea that the number two problem of Roomba was was what? what it, it, it was what? I can't remember. 
Do you remember, Jeff? What was the number two problem? It was uh, it was dog doo doo, right? The Roomba running over the dog doo. That's the, oh, that's the number two problem of the Roomba. Yes, number two. Um, tragic, tragic, and, and again, scary. I I didn't know when I first read the article. I didn't realize that the Roomba had actually spelled out a word, which is. It's like a crop circle, yeah. but different. And the word blurn of all words. Blurn. Because that's scary. It's code. Yeah. This apparently is a common problem. Is I, it? Uh, the Daily Mail interviewed uh, several people who I guess had put out in social media that this had happened to them also. And uh, a woman with four cats. <laughs> she says it's happened two or three times a year since they got the, uh, the, yeah. the, the, ro- the robotic vacuum. And uh, other people, like with kids, kids, I mean, kids drop their food on the floor, right. and then the Roomba just cruises right through it. And... Well, and what a great point about socks. How many times have you gone to the drawer and you're missing a sock? Yeah. Right? Or you're missing, you know, something that you've, you've had. Or like a broken vase, and you ask your kids, hey, kids, who broke the vase? And they're all like, we didn't. You blame the robot. Mom's not going to buy that. Right. But it has to be the robot. There's nobody else. Because your kids aren't going to lie. Right. I thought you brought up an interesting point, though. Do you get rid of the pet or do you get rid of the Roomba? You got to choose. You can't have both. Until the Roomba can detect moisture. I read this to my wife. She said both. The pet and the Roomba. (laughs) Both out of the house. Wow. They can't behave. Get them out. That's because you go home and clean the house. You are your wife's little Roomba. Yeah, well. Isn't that what she calls you? Isn't no. that her little love name for you? No. Roomba! No. No? Mm-mm. Okay. It's a great dance, though. The Roomba? I think they spell it differently. Yeah, probably. Well, it's good to have Schick on the team, though. Yeah. And it's also great. I didn't know that we had a chief conspiracy correspondent. Uh, I knew we were looking to hire one. Apparently the news yeah. budget expanded. Yeah. Hops. Uh, Hops Feedman? Hop Speedman. Speedman. I'm excited to meet Mr. Speedman next time. He he sounds like he knows a lot about conspiracy. Because I had never even heard of the word blurn, but when it's like... Or at least is enthusiastic about the topic. Absolutely. <laughs> Number two problem, folks, of the Roomba, your pet droppings. Be careful. We will take a break. When we come back, we'll be speaking with... Uh, actually, replaying a, a, an interesting interview we did with Dr. Arthur Lupia about why some people just know so little about politics. Why are they so uninformed? Is that lack of information causing what we're seeing today in our presidential election, where our pain is promoting people that have such low trust? Interesting stuff. Stick with us, folks. Helping you see the world and and hopefully get the information you need to make the big decisions in your life. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We have, you know, a lagging interest in politics. I mean, I get why you don't love politics. Some do. 
And um, our guest, uh, we're getting on the phone, Dr. Lupia, is, uh, has a great quote I heard him say. And I don't know if he was quoting someone else, but he, he basically believes there's two types of people. Those that are ignorant, right? And then those that are delusional and think they know a lot more than they do. And so when it comes to politics, we probably have the same situation going on, right? Where some are just flat out ignorant. They don't know what's going on. Really, they don't. They don't. They're not paying attention to it. They just think that this is a really crazy episode from reality television. The hiring of a president. Um, And then there's others who actually, you know, are maybe a little delusional thinking that they know so much. But they, they garner their information, and we talk about this a lot on the show. They've gathered their information from resources that totally jive with everything they think. Right, they're they're not gathering just facts, and and neutral data. They tend to gather the data that's already been maybe twisted, maybe turned to the favor of of uh, their candidate or their persuasion, and so it's a it's an interesting thing that we're dealing with. And in the end, though, the the data tends to be showing that we're struggling to get voters to turn out. A Center for the Study of American Electorate in 2012 did a study, and their study shows that in 2000, 54.2% of the population uh, turned out, of the electorate turned out for the vote, 54%. Um, then in 2004, it went up to about 60.4%. In 2008, 62.3%. That was when Barack Obama won, right? And he brought in so many more of the minority votes and, and really lifted up the turnout. And then in 2012, his second term, voter um, turnout, electorate turnout was 57.5%. Back down to uh, nearly what it was back in 2000, just a little bit better than that. So, and that was um, the whole, you know, Romney run, right, against Obama. So, it's, it's an interesting discussion, and uh, our, our next guest, Dr. Arthur Lupia, is um, going to be talking to us about this, about what do we do to inform the people about what's going on in the political world. His book is titled Uninformed, Why People Seem to Know So Little About Politics and What We Can Do About It. Anything we can do to increase the competency of voters is is going to be, I think, incredibly important to our democracy. Um, stick with us and and let's learn. Dr. Arthur Lupia, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. This is um, for me, uh, boy, what a what an important topic, and also timing probably couldn't be better. Um, talk to me, Dr. Lupia, about your book, Uninformed. I mean, 57.5% turnout in the 2012 election, is that because the the voters are just, are they in a malaise? Do they just not care anymore? What do you mean when you talk about uninformed? Well, um, when we think about, you know, it's often easy to tell a story about those uninformed voters who aren't doing the right things, whether they're not turning out for elections or voting for the candidate that you don't like. Right. Um, but. But when we ask people, uh, there's really two types of people in America, and this is my starting point. Uh, there's one group of people who know very little about almost everything and recognize that, and the other group is delusional about how much they know. So let me explain that. 
uh, every year Congress passes between two and 300 laws, and your state legislature or mine passes two or 300 laws, and the city that I live in would pass 100 laws. And mm. even though I'm an expert in you know, political information, I-, I couldn't name more than 10 of them in a given year. Right. And so uh, the issue isn't that you know, there are some people who don't know things and there are some people who know everything. All of us don't know things, but now the opportunity is how do we give people the information they need to make good decisions, and that's what my book's about. That's a great point because it's. I mean, it, it, there's just too much to know, and I guess too, it's we ha- we have to give them the information, and we I guess we have to figure out what people really need to know, don't we? Yeah, yeah. It's it's not just what people need to know because you know if you and I go to the voting booth and we have two choices, a chimp with a coin gets that right half the time. <laughs> so you know what we have to figure out is how to do better than that. But then the other key to it is how to give people the information that they need in a way that they'll actually want to pay attention to and think about and remember. And that's a really tricky part, but it's something that we can do. And it seems like of all times to do it, it's today because people can get more information about stuff they've never even wanted to know or know know they needed to know just online. The technology's there. Yeah. That's a good thing and a bad thing. The good thing is that if, if you're a political geek, this is the best time in history for right. you because you can find so much about everything. The bad news is if you're not that interested in politics, some of those cat videos are really entertaining, and you can watch them all day instead of learning anything about politics. And so one of the tricks now for people who want to educate people about you know, science or education or matters of faith or whatever it is is to break through and to try and get you know, give it given information to people in ways that they want to pay attention to, that's relevant to their lives and that they can actually use. Hmm. Is there a correlation, do you think, between this um, this uh, lack of knowing and turnout? Uh, there's some correlation, but, you know, this is something people have studied over, over a long period of time. There's some people who don't know very much and they don't care and they don't turn out, and that's always been the case. There are some people who actually know quite a bit, and they're disaffected, and they just think their vote doesn't make a difference, and they stay away. So, you know, we have, we have both types. It, what is true is that when we have a political moment where people think that the decision is really relevant to their lives and those of their families and communities, that's when you see turnout spike a bit. Mm. But, as, but as a general matter, um, there's a slight correlation between what we call knowledge and turnout, but it's not uh, determinative. What do you see? Uh, I mean, I've been dying to ask you this. Um, the, uh, okay, so the name of the book, Uninformed, Why People Do yep. Know So Little About Politics and What We Can Do About It. What's going through your head as you watch, let's just say, the last month of the primary process? Yeah. Um, well, you know, at, if we can talk about the last three months, we, yeah, started sure. with 17, we started with 17 candidates on the Republican side. And in the Republican Party for about 40 years, there's been a pretty significant division between what you might call establishment Republicans and movement conservatives about the role of government. I mean, they all disagree with the Democrats, but there's a pretty real disagreement. And over the last, let's say, since the, particularly since 2008, when we had the bailout that President Bush uh, had some things to do with, members of what we call the Tea Party or movement conservatives have been increasingly unhappy with the establishment Republicans. So that's been festering for a while. Governor Romney, uh, President Bush 43, Ronald Reagan, they're recent historical figures who have found a way to talk to both groups. But in this, uh, with 17 people, 
trying to talk to both groups proved to be a pretty bad strategy because to emerge from that mess, uh, you've got to have, you know, you've got to have some strong way to distinguish yourself. And Donald Trump did that, right? And so you had um, Governor Bush from Florida, Marco Rubio, trying to talk to both groups. You had Ted Cruz really just trying to talk to movement conservatives. But Donald Trump just tried an entirely different strategy, which was to break from the convention of those two wings of the Republican Party and speak directly to a set of disaffected people, mostly within the Republican Party, about their concerns, about their anxieties, give them very simple sound bites and strong conclusions. And when there are 17 people, if at the beginning you get 25 percent, which was mm. what Donald Trump got, you win. Yeah, every so time. Be, yeah, so his move early on was, it's not about policy coherence, it's about distinguishing himself from the other 16, and he did that very well. Wow. Yeah. And, and I guess that that really helped in the in the broader race with 17. Do you think that helps when it's one on one? No, I think it's a it's, it's a bit of a problem now. Um, what it did was really help. It helped him get a lot of the moderates out of the way. Uh, you know, I think it's why Governor Bush and some of the other people who are from the, the establishment Republican wing, uh, you know, it's why they they left the race pretty quickly. Yeah. But now when it's it's one on one, it's tougher because. Um, now, uh, Donald Trump is more likely to be called on some of the inconsistencies in his policy, some of the ways in which he breaks with the different types of Republican orthodoxy, and there's not 16 other voices competing. Now there's just one. So I think that, and, and you see Trump, I think, now thinking about changing his strategy a bit. So I don't think the primary strategy will get him very far. Hmm. Does does a, a process that we've been through, let's say the last three months, does it improve an informed electorate or does it just confuse them more? Like Donald's been complaining about the ballot is rigged, the ballot processes or the delegate process is rigged. And, um, you know, we're not and then we hear we're not a we're a republic. We're not a democracy. And then we also have Bernie Sanders on the side. That's a socialist Democrat. I mean, it, so yeah. is it is it informing us or because are people like taking these things and saying, OK, well, when they say he's a socialist, what does that mean? Or are we just confusing everybody? Well, both things are happening with respect to the first part of your question, because we had, you know, the possibility of a contested convention on the Republican side. And, you know, at least the close election on the Democratic side, there's been much more media attention to the roles of the primary process. And what's interesting about this is prior to this year, you know, the typical cell was come out to the primary, your vote matters, and we're going to, you know, uh, bring about a nominee. And so it's really important that you vote. And now what people on both sides have recognized is, well, wait a minute, that's not exactly how it works. Right. And so I think particularly on the Republican side, after, you know, the nomination contest blows over, there will be a significant debate, let's say, early next year about what the rules for 2020 are going to be, because a lot of people ha- have have now seen the, you know, the, the, the gold, the Rube Goldberg device that's the Republican primary rules, and they're going to want some changes. Mm, yeah. And, and again, disconnected from the event itself. I, I, I guess this is part of what's interesting is um, – it doesn't seem like we have the information necessarily when we need it. We, we'll get it later or we'll get it way too early, never maybe in the moment. Um, we're speaking with Dr. Arthur Lupia, the author of the book Uninformed, Why People Seem to Know So Little About Politics 
and what we can do about it. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion. Also get into his solutions. Um, how do you inform uh, the electorate? And and how do you get people to get involved without like forcing it upon them like mom used to do with spinach? Interesting. I mean, it's it's good for you, but you may not like how it tastes. Stick with us. More with Dr. Arthur Lupia. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. To the Matt Townsend Show, two types of people we were just taught by our, our guest, Dr. Arthur Lupia, who is a, the Hal R. Varian Collegiate Professor of Political Science at the University of Michigan, and also the author of the book, uh, Uninformed, Why People Seem to Know So Little About Politics and What We Can Do About It. Two types of people, basically, those that, um, you know, that are uninformed that don't really know what's going on. And then those that are, have kind of deluded themselves into believing that they know way more than they actually do. And those two combine to, uh, to create a problem where we, we want an informed electorate, right? And yet 57.5% of uh, people turned out to vote in the 2012 election. Let's get back to Dr. Arthur Lupia, find out uh, what, what, what we can do about this. Dr. Lupia, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you. This is, I think it's so important, and it seems so basic, and I think some people are maybe just are drawn to politics. They kind of like the issues, or they like the the debate about it, and maybe others are just not informed. Is that what you find? I mean, they're not informed, but not even caring about it. Yeah, I mean, there are different types. I mean, there are some people who really care about the policies, are are really public regarding, care about their communities, and see a life in public service as a way to, you know, not only help their communities, but to kind of, you know, advance themselves. There are other people who like the sport of it, who like the horse race, you know, who are excited about it in the way that you would be of, on, um, you know, spectator sports. But then there are other people, you know, politics is, issues become political when they get close to value conflicts within our society, different ways of looking at things. When we have an an ethical or moral consensus, uh, we don't use politics anymore. We just say this is the right thing to do, and we we go away from that. So when we get to these issues of like ethical or moral moral conflicts, some people really don't like to think about it. It makes them uncomfortable, and so they stay away from politics that way. And then there are other people who don't think about any of it that deeply. It's just it's just more fun to do other things, and so they yeah. are, they're out entirely. Like Candy Crush. Exactly. And what could, and, and cat videos. That's such a good comment you made, um, because that I guess that's it. We have all of this other information, but then um, our politicians will give us data. They'll they'll throw out all of these facts, uh, I guess, in a desire to either I guess to inform us, or is it to just create more smoke? You know, uh, statistics are used for different reasons. Um, sometimes people want to use statistics. To say, look, uh, life is improving, or we have a real threat, and here's a way to think about it. And if you love statistics, that type of information can can be really helpful. It can help you develop a strategy to try and improve quality of life. 
Uh, in other cases, uh, some people have trouble hearing statistics. You know, we, there's this saying, it's a little bit unfortunate, that, you know, a thousand suffering children is a statistic, one suffering child is a tragedy, mm. right? When we see a story of a child that's in danger, we want to do something. But sometimes when we hear that a thousand people, a child's children are suffering, well, that just becomes a number. And so uh, statistics are problematic in that way. And then, of course, people use statistics to try and obscure things. So you know, all of those things happen in government. At their best, they can really inform us about what we need to do. And isn't that the big point of your book? That Because you're drawing on more than just political science theory. You're drawing on psychology and attention span and political psychology. Uh, we, we may need to really relook at how we – are trying to get our uh, our electorate's attention, right, and how we educate them. Talk to us about some of your solutions that you propose in your book, Uninformed. Sure. So, well, you, you hit some of it right before the commercial break. You know, a lot of people who are involved in education, like myself, it's easy for us to tell ourselves a story that other people should be obligated to learn what we know. But that's not how brains work. We have so many things competing for our attention, not just cat videos and Candy Crush, but family concerns or sometimes, you know, our jobs and things of that nature. And political information is competing with all of that. So here's a short way to tell a longer story. If you want people to pay attention to politics, you have to find a way to make the information relevant to their core values, to their core concerns, in a way that, that, that people want to think about it. They, they want to take what you're saying and work it into their lives. So many times people like myself, we go in front of an audience and we just talk at people. Hmm. We just sort of give them information, and then we get frustrated with them if they don't listen. But a lot of the advice that I give is that a person like myself, before you encounter a group, you should really do a lot of listening, or you should really at least do a lot of learning in terms of why are these people in a room with me? Why have they come to this session, or why have they come to this website? And how can I be of service to them? And if I could think about how to be of service to an audience and in that moment give people information that they need to make better decisions, then I will have an audience, right? But if I just talk at you and and tell you to eat your spinach, you'll nod because it's polite to do so, and then you'll walk away and think about something else. And forget about you. I guess that that is, I guess, part of the power of being an influential person is knowing the pain of another and, I guess, being able to convey the pain. It's a a huge thing, and, and... so many times in politics, we get so excited about our own point of view uh, or an issue that we, that, that we love or a candidate that we love that we forget what it's like to either not know about these things or to be against them. And so then we'll start talking to someone and, and telling them that they should like our candidate and the other person is offended or they just don't get what we're talking about. And, and, and we think it's their, their fault, where in many cases we could, if we were, this sounds non-scientific, but we, if we are a little more sensitive to what it is the other person needs at that moment or in that time and find a way to convey our information with respect to that person's needs, that person on their own will become interested, more interested in listening to what we're saying, and then the educational moments can really happen. Hmm. Do, do you sense, um, is, I guess, is that the job of the politician? I mean, I guess it's everybody's job in trying to educate. Well, um, you know... It, Politicians, if you're running for president, usually have a team of people helping you with that, right? They, right. Call, it, they call it messaging. And at its best, uh, what those teams are doing is they're going in and they're listening to voters. They're going in and listening to citizens and hearing the stories of their lives and their struggles with jobs and family and things like that, bringing it back to the candidate, bringing it back to the team, and then trying to figure out, okay, here's a way at this moment 
that I can help you. And, and I think the best candidates are the ones who can tell a strong story about their policy stances, but seamlessly integrate that into the real lives of people. Um, you know, at, when you're running for state legislature, you have to do that on your own. Right. Or you get a couple of interns to help you. But um, you know, so much of what being a, an effective politician is about, sometimes we, we, you know, we don't, it's easy to make fun of politicians, but the ones that are really doing a great job trying to help people with quality of life, listening is such a great skill for them. They can walk into a room, they spend a little time trying to figure out why people are there, and then they can tell an honest story about themselves, but integrate it into the lives of the audience. Hmm. And when you can do that, you actually have an audience. That's right. And yeah, and you'll aggregate the audience. I guess, I mean, you can see that like on Twitter, people that can, they just can talk about the needs of certain people. They start, those people start accumulating this audience and the audience will follow you. And I guess, so that would work, you know, in, in old school media, in print, in social media, it can work everywhere. If you can convey, you understand what's going on with people. Yeah, one of the things that I, when I give people advice on this, I, I tell them a story, which is sometimes we're told that to tell our story, to, for me to go in front of an audience and tell our story. And what we know from looking at brains is that other people aren't inherently interested in my story. What they want to hear me tell is their story. I can be in it, but if I'm in it, what they need to be able to do is see me as some kind of version of them or me as a version of somebody they care about. So like when we go see Star Wars and we see Luke Skywalker, Part of the reason that people are attracted to Skywalker is they see an aspirational version of themselves in Luke Skywalker or a son or a relative, and so you care about what happens to them. Similarly, in education, if I'm going to tell a story about me, it's only going to be relevant to you if you could see yourself in that position. And if my story of redemption or hard work or whatever it is, you say, you know, that would work for me too. Now my audience is going to be interested in that story. But if I just tell a story about myself that an audience can't relate to, uh, they're going to nod to be polite, yeah. and they're going to forget it. And, and and that that comes out with candidates, too, that just don't seem – they're telling a story, and it even might yeah. be a story about somebody and their real need, but it doesn't seem to con- – it's not conveyed. It's not transferred to my heart, and I feel yeah. like they're full of it. No, there was a movie about 10 years ago that came out. And it was called uh, She's Just Not That Into You. Yeah, I love that. I yeah, I try to tell people that's life, right? That is the standard. Uh, that should be your standard operating assumption that when you're talking to other people. That's your baseline, and so now what you have to do is try and build a moment where you can touch people's lives, sort of react to to their situation, and say, "Okay, I understand that, and now I'm going to give you something of value to your life." And if you open that up, people can hear a lot of things, and that's when learning really occurs. Mm. Do you sense, I mean, like I kind of see a mix going on between maybe a more uh, liberal and a more conservative approach where conservatives seem to have cornered talk radio and, um, you know, they've got big audiences and uh, liberals seem to have, you know, kind of cornered maybe television, kind of the John Oliver type of media too. Um, Are these... Are these helpful in informing, or are they only informing in a one-sided or a... I mean, how do you see these other forms of information? Well, what's certainly true is that you don't see a lot of, let's say, liberals watching Fox News with an open mind. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, they look at Bill O'Reilly and they start counter-arguing. So this is a very common phenomenon. Um, My background's in mathematics, and early in my career, what I wanted to believe was that people processed information efficiently. But as I did my own research and looked at the research of others, the thing that is absolutely clear 
is that we typically have a feeling about information first, and maybe later we'll think about it. And so that feeling is typically, does this information threaten us, in which case we want to find some way to get away from it really quickly, or does it, you know, boost our self-esteem and tell us that we're right and we're awesome, in which case we want more of it and we want to elevate it. And so most information search works that way. There's a huge emotional component to do I accept this or do I reject it, which is why if you and I were going to try and, like, educate people about a certain policy, what we need to do first is understand people's values and then try and tell the story of what we know in, in ways that are consistent with the values that people have. Because if we walk into a room and, and the first thing we say is, you guys have bad values and now we're going to tell you, you know, how the world works. Right. Again, people will, if they haven't gotten up and left, the best they'll do is they'll nod at us, they'll be polite, and then they'll leave and never think about it again. Mm. So we've got to tap, we've got to go to people where they are if we want them to listen to what we're saying. Yeah. Um, we have about a minute left, Dr. Lupia. Talk to me um, just about our children and you know, the training and education of political science and civics in our schools. What what can we do as parents? What can we do as people to strengthen their their love of maybe country, but their civic duty and, you know, their, their need to be a participant? Yeah, well, I, you pointed out the first step before the break. Uh, you know, even kids don't want to hear that they should eat their spinach, right? And so telling stories about our communities and about our nation and about our government, helping them realize that the aspirations that they have, the lives that they lead, the privileges or or opportunities that they have, the struggles that they have come from this common experience that we've had. And that, you know, things like government don't just happen to us. They are things that we're a part of. And so, you know, constructing narratives and and providing situations where even young people can be involved in decision-making and they can see how their participation makes a difference and even improves just the lives of their classmates, those can be really powerful examples for children about how participating in the political process can improve the lives of people around them. So I think a civic education that is more experience-oriented can be a powerful thing for children. I love it. Again, that was Dr. Arthur Lupia from um, the Varian Collegiate Professor of Political Science at the University of Michigan, an interview we did a few weeks ago that we wanted to revisit. Parents, when you think about it, you in this new tech age, there's a new responsibility. It's not enough to, you know, just we don't have three networks anymore and one newspaper that we can trust and, and gather our information from. There are so many sources, so many sites, so many providers, so many collectors of information and ideas. As parents, we are going to have to find a way to educate our children on how to open their minds up and, and check their sources and, and manage the idea that it's not enough to just keep being fed what you like to hear. We need to to maybe find a way to let our children get confident in their ability to evaluate data and information and make informed decisions. It's uh, it's a it's a world that's not going away. And in a way, we might handicap our kids if we only ever let them hear one source of data and information the way we like to hear it, because eventually they're going to hit the world. And when they hit the world and hear of other ideas, you might lose your kids and lose the battle of information. Plus, it weakens our country overall. We'll take a break, folks. We'll be right back. Continue the discussion right here on The Matt Townsend Show. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. 
Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, as if parenting wasn't difficult enough, right? But one thing that we may not be ready for is the, is this new technology age, right? The techno age where our kids have to learn, and they do learn, and are much more tech-savvy than most of us adults, um, sadly. However, we have to teach them skills that make them resilient with this technology, that make it so that this, the technology doesn't become their master, that instead we, we teach them some basic you know, finding skills. And it's no longer about getting information. You can now get information, but we really need to instill discernment. So our, our youngins are discerning what they're reading. They're able to evaluate it. I think it also puts a major responsibility on the parents to make sure that the children know what their principles are. What do we believe in? And I, I found with my kids, if they know what the principles are, the basic tenets of what we believe, that helps them discern and, and kind of sort through the media. Also, the idea that you can hear something and it can sound really good and it's not always accurate and there's always more information. And there's some things that cannot just be told uh, via logic. Some information has to reach your heart even more importantly than reaching your head. Make sense? So let's just pick up our game. We've all got more we can do. And not to be discouraged either. Life is good. You live in a good day and age, safer than it's ever been, believe it or not. And yet it doesn't always feel that way. We'll take a break. That's hour number two of the show. Stick with us. More fun next hour and information. We'll teach you how to save money by uh, watching out what uh, your, your numbers are doing for you. Stick with us. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Happy Serendipity Day. The day... Serendipity. I don't think that said serendipity. My, oh my, what a wonderful Jeff, day. I don't think that said serendipity. I think it just said zippity doo da. It sure sounded like serendipity doo da to me. <laughs> wow, I've never heard that song. Today's also serendipity day. It's also helium day, the day we celebrate the gas that makes us talk really high. Hmm. We have got a lot on the show for you today. Holy cow. We're going to take you on a tour of some of your favorite Hollywood actors all gassed up with helium. Some of the greatest lines in movie history with a little bit of helium on board. Mm, All hopped up on helium. Hopped up on helium. That's the segment we call (laughs) Hopped Up on Helium. It's a weird segment. Celebrity edition. Celebrity edition. We'll be getting to that. Also, uh, crazy stories um, about just everything you can imagine from chili peppers to, Mm. but not the red hot chili peppers. That's a different story. To grapes that you won't believe how much grapes are selling for now. Mm. 
I haven't been shopping for a very long time. Yeah. But the price of grapes really shocked me. <laughs> we'll get to that. Plus, why are most Americans broke? Before blaming the government or anyone else for your debt. They might be buying grapes. Apparently they're buying the grapes. <laughs> it's expensive. We will be speaking with Holly Johnson, getting some tips on, uh, you know, basic things you got to pay attention to to make sure you're not going to go broke. All of that, plus our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, will have a hero of the day on the show as well. A lot to cover. A little update on some of the Olympics, maybe. We're really lucky. And what not to do with a snow globe. Whoa. A lot. Sounds like a public service announcement. We've got a lot of those lately. But first, let's get to Sadie Nielsen and the headlines. Sadie? A wildfire with a ferocity never seen before by veteran California firefighters raced up and down canyons, instantly engulfing homes and forcing thousands of people to flee, some running for their lives just ahead of the flames. By Wednesday, a day after ignited in brush and left bone dry by years of drought, the blaze had raged across 40 square miles. Though by the end of the day, the first foothold was gained and more than 1,500 firefighters had the blaze 4% contained. Authorities could not immediately say how many homes had been destroyed, but they warned that the number will be large. Three collections of short stories that will expand on the Harry Potter universe will be published this fall, Time Magazine reports. The books, which will cost about $3 each, will delve deeper into the dark side of the wizarding world. The e-books will cost each about 10,000 words long, will be available September 6th. Florida Keys residents have stalled the testing of genetically engineered mosquitoes, despite the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approving a trial release of the insect in the area. A British company developed the male mosquito that produce offspring that are said to fail to reach maturity, making them an effective means of reducing local mosquito populations, especially in areas that have seen mosquito-borne outbreaks of viruses such as Zika. While the Keys Mosquito Control Board has allowed the company to breed its mosquitoes on one island, they will not allow a trial release instead putting it on a November ballot referendum. And finally, uh, people end up in the emergency room for all sorts of reasons, but this has to be one of the most bizarre yet. A boy named Anthony apparently inhaled a dog dog toy, leaving him squeaking with every breath he took. The hilarious video of the youngster... (laughs) Apparently waiting to be seen in the hospital has quickly gone viral racking up 9 million views in just a few hours. <laughs> squeakers. A squeaky too. It's squeakers. She says, um, a woman in the room said, why are you in the emergency room? And he said, because I inhaled a doggy toy. He squeaked. Squeak. <laughs> that is so sad. So it's more how, of a, maybe a wheeze as he breathes in and out. How old is this kid? That doesn't sound right. He's That's like funny. 18. He's probably younger than that. Oh, man. Sadie, thank you. That's uh, that's a sad story, I must say. I mean, funny. Funny for everybody but the boy and the family. Oh, yeah. But it's all right. He got it removed. They reached in with the tongs and. I hate it when they get the tongs. Slid the dog toy past his brain and pulled it right out. It was great. Boy, it was really up there. It was in his sinus cavity. The, the amazing things that kids get stuck in their bodies. You, have you had exciting opportunities yet to pull something out of your son's We nose? were a little worried. My son has Legos. And they have little Stormtrooper Legos. Yeah. And they have a helmet that pops off. We didn't know where that was. Where'd the helmet go, son? We found it, so it's not in his nose. Spider-Man, he had a Spider-Man figure. It disappeared. Where did that go? Roomba. It showed up. <laughs> Finally just was in a couch or something. It's a great point Jeff makes. Have you checked the Roomba? They don't have a Roomba. 
That's me. I have a vacuum cleaner. That's right. That's remember. That's what his wife calls him. No, her, it's not what says, my wife calls me. He's her little Roomba. Rudy Roomba. And then they break into a dance. Why is this such an important thing for you to me that somehow I hate my wife has a pet name for me? Because we know she does. Is that a key component to any relationship? Yeah, a functional one. Okay. You guys are functional. On some level. I mean, you guys have functioned before. Yeah, at least once. (laughs) It's a Helium Discovery Day, and we wanted to celebrate Helium Discovery Day, by the way. The day, 1868, helium discovered during a total solar eclipse. French astronomer spots an unknown element, now known as helium, in the spectrum of the sun during a much-anticipated total eclipse. The event marks the first discovery of extraterrestrial of the extraterrestrial element. By the way, helium existed before 1868. Oh, it did. We just found it. We hadn't named it. discovered it yet. Right? <sighs> but then they found that, that field of helium in yes. New Zealand, right? Do you remember that? We sent that reporter there. Yeah. And he sounded so funny during that segment. Yeah. Well, we wanted to, um, and this took a lot of work, people. We went, because there's so many times you've heard a movie star with like a line from his movie or her movie, and they're amazing. And you think, oh, that is just great. We thought, what if we could track them all down, hmm. give them some helium, and then we wanted to hear what their quotes would sound like under the influence of helium. So we did it. And uh, here's the joy of some of your most talented actors on helium. I'll be back. Hmm. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Oh, wow. Here's Johnny! Hey, uh, this is Houston. Uh, say again, please. Houston, we have a problem. What's the matter? I have a headache. It might be a tumor. It's not a tumor! Too late. They start shooting in a week. I'm gonna make them an offer. He's gonna have a few. The Godfather sounds different uh, on Helium. Not quite as menacing. Kind of sounds like the little mouse from uh, Zootopia. Yeah. Hmm. It's not a tumor. Yeah, Arnold doesn't quite sound as... Not menacing. Yeah. You I know, could... everybody can do Arnold, an Arnold impression. Did you know that? No. Well, you just did one. I did. The tumor one. Get to the chopper. So it's not a good impression, but an yeah. impression. Okay. It's, it's a sad impression. <laughs> Super sad. Uh, what a... What a day. We, we talked earlier about Trump. Trump's mm-hmm. not in trouble, but he did revamp his entire leadership. With a bunch of people who've never done those jobs they've been put in yeah. before. But I mean, I mean, that's... My wife was asking, why, why can't he get experienced people? And for most of the reports that have been read, is anyone who has been a, a Republican uh, campaign leader, they've all ran away. Well, they, yeah, they don't want to be near that. They don't want to touch that. So. Train wreck. So, but again, you don't need... To have, you know, experienced people if you're not in trouble. Says who? <laughs> Says who? Says Just, who? I mean, your your numbers are bad. Says who? Yeah. What polls? All, All the of polls. <laughs> okay. That, by the way, is a quote from An one interview of the new on leaders, CNN, Michael yes. Cohen, one of the new leaders for Donald Trump's oh, I think he's been a spokesperson for quite a while. Oh, has he? Yeah, yeah. just a lawyer kind of working with the campaign. But last night, for some reason... He was very defensive about the sheer number of polls that are showing Trump behind at this point. Yeah. But do not be discouraged. There's still 80 plus days. And of course, he responds with says who. 
which is really reflective of kind of the attitude of the Trump campaign to this point. Right. Right. What's the prevailing knowledge? Eh, don't care. Well, many are saying you, you can't put your head in the sound, sand, Donald, because they believe that's kind of what Mitt Romney did and trusted numbers that weren't there, and you could have changed your entire game. He's going to move forward as a disruptor. Yeah. He's going to do the, the bare-knuckles brawling type thing. So mm-hmm. the debate should be very entertaining. Well, yeah. And awkward as Trump starts venturing into areas where uh, really don't have much to do with politics but may go to character. Yeah. Of a certain Democratic I, th- I think I think what Donald's hoping for is that Hillary Clinton, because apparently, if depending on what you're reading, hmm. like if you're reading Breitbart, if you're reading Drudge Report, certain reports, she's on her last leg. Yes. She may not make it to the big election because she's she lacks stamina. Her general health is in question. General health. Dr. Drew. I don't know if you heard that, but Dr. Drew Pinsky. What did he say? Uh, America's most noted doctor to, on TV. To the celebrities, yes. To the celebrities. In a rehab he's, situation. He's worried about her health because right. he, she's got a, she has a lot of weird older methods. They're, they're trying to deal with issues that she's had. Mm-hmm. And she's on a lot of medicines that we used like 20, 30 years ago, but we don't use those anymore. Right. And he thinks he's worried about her care. She should try helium. helium. Helium? Helium, honestly. Yeah. Ah, plus, I think helium makes you feel lighter, doesn't it? At least lightheaded. Yeah. <laughs> makes, I don't know. It makes me feel like I float. Uh, here's a crazy story for you that, again, we just want to help everybody. So if you're planning on robbing a bank mm. and you're going to be a bad boy, this is going to help. Please say a would-be bank robber tried to pull a heist in Long Island, but pretty much everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Authorities say a man with a shotgun entered a bank of America first Saturday and demanded cash. Okay. His first problem came when the teller refused to give him money oh. or let him enter the teller area. At that point, he left the bank empty-handed, save his shotgun, right, in his hand, right. only to crash into a police car arriving on the scene. Ooh. He managed to drive on, only to mm. smash into a utility pole. Okay, he then so not far. Fled on foot. Apparently, yeah. lost his gun. Right. But local residents pointed him out. There he is, officer. Mm. Prince Conte, 26, is charged with first-degree attempted robbery, second-degree assault, criminal use of a firearm, and probably reckless driving. Yeah. Boy, that was a bad day. Yeah, he didn't plan that well. No. He, he seemed to have a good, uh, at least the the quality bone structure of a good plan. No, right? you, you need good bone structure. He started with gun in hand. Yeah. That gives you a lot of attention in the bank. He had a getaway car. He had the target. He had a getaway uh-huh. car. He had the target. But he didn't account for the person just looking at him and saying, no. no. Uh-uh. We don't do that here, sir. You, know, you need to know how to respond in that situation. Give me all your money. That would be how you would respond. I'm going to need to check with my manager. Not go, Can you oh. give me one minute, sir? Okay, and then just sort of slink oh, out the, the door. Oh, the manager's at lunch? Okay, sorry, our manager's at lunch. We can't give you money today. If you want to fill out a form, we could have the manager call you when she gets back. Now, granted, he probably made a quick exit realizing his plan had gone south. Oh, that was smart. That was a right? smart move. Get out of there. But then bad move where you aren't careful and yeah. you go tearing out and run into the Crashed. police car. I mean, amazingly, right into a cop car. Yeah. But which is what you kind of expect the out of key, bank robbery. The key when leaving any sort of altercation like that is drive slowly. Don't draw attention to yourself. You'll just move right on you out know of the what area. I learned? Look both ways. That too? Look both and proceed with caution. Try not to run into telephone poles. 
They're not even moving, so you should be able to maneuver that one pretty he easily. He should have seen that pole coming for, I don't know, two, three, four, five hundred feet, right? Right. So you can kind of see where his plan went went the wrong way and areas where he can improve next time in 10 to 15 and years. don't be discouraged, Prince. Don't be discouraged. There's always 10 years from now. Or 15. There's so many other banks. <laughs> 10 on good behavior. Yeah. <laughs> so, so sad. Hey, uh, sp- speaking of armed robbery, one more story I got to tell you. How much would you pay for a bunch of grapes? One million dollars. Seems a little overpriced to me. A little bit. A little million dollars. If it gets much over three dollars for the the bunch of grapes, we're like, whoa, really? Those must be good grapes. A bunch of grapes has fetched a record price at an auction in Japan where the fruit is considered a status symbol. The bunch of grapes, about about 30 grapes is all, of the Mm. Ruby Roman variety. Oh. Ruby Roman. Do you not love the Ruby Roman Romans? Mmm. Especially if they got a, a good wet spring, lots of rain, you're able to get a, a nice flavorful fruit. I love the Ruby Romans. The Luby Romans, not so much. Okay. The Luby ones are just they just seem a little I don't know. Are they seedless? Ooh, I don't know. Does that make a difference? It's a deal breaker. Listen to this. They sold thirty grapes, folks, for one point one million yen or eleven thousand dollars. Say what? Yeah, exactly. 350 bucks a grape. Wow. Each grape is roughly the size of a house. <laughs> no, a ping pong ball. Okay. Boy, that would be fun to eat. It's a big grape. The grapes are grown in Ishikawa Prefecture. By the way, I wonder if any of the radiation from the Japan thing caused that. You may you, That may be a north-south situation. Yeah. I know the reactor is more in the northern part of the country. This yeah. may be southern. I don't know where Ishikawa is, yeah. but... Uh, to qualify for the Ruby Roman designation, each grape must weigh at least 20 grams and have a sugar content of at least 18% sugar. Wow. That's a pretty high standard. <laughs> yeah. My grapes, we just get at Costco. Anywho, we'll take a break, folks. When we come back, uh, maybe you shouldn't be buying grapes. According to our next guest, there's a reason why most Americans are broke. And it might go back to your own spending. Quit blaming the government and everyone else for your debt. It's about your spending. Stick with us. It's probably because you just bought some Ruby some Ruby Romans. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, keep the money in your pocket. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Hey, did you know that uh, the Federal Reserve says the average American family with a credit card debt carries more than $15,000 in balances on their cards alone? $15,000 in credit card debt alone. It is so easy to swipe the card and and live in luxury these days. But luxury comes with a price, and that's a price is a lot more than they're going to charge you at the store. You might think that you're providing for your family by buying specialty foods or top-of-the-line cars and clothes, but maybe you're actually hurting your kids by teaching bad spending habits and burying them in financial hole. Today, financial expert and award-winning personal credit writer Holly Johnson joins us from Indiana to discuss with us her article, The Upside-Down Reason Most Americans Are Broke, and help us realize some of the spending and saving mistakes we could be making Holly Johnson, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. 
We are upside down. Uh, I love the article. Talk to me about your your philosophy here. Why are we upside down? It, 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 how could we up, be upside down, Holly, when everyone else is doing what we're doing? Well, um, I wrote the article partly to share my story. When my husband and I were in our 20s, we lived just the same way everyone else did. We spent whatever we wanted. We tried to save whatever was left. We didn't reach our goals. We wanted things, but we didn't take steps to earn the things that we wanted. And um, basically what I shared in my article is I think we're all doing it backwards. We're doing everything backwards because we buy what we want. We spend what we want. We create lifestyles we want, and then we try to save what's left. And if you look at the statistics, we're failing. Oh, it's so true. It's yeah. It used to be, you know, you could only eat the the products you had raised, right? You had to right. you had to earn it before you could consume it and have it. We live in a weird world where we're extended credit before we even know what credit is. And we know more about what's happening with Justin Bieber than we do what's happening with our own wallet. Exactly. That's so true. Cheap and easy credit is to blame along with, with ourselves because you can buy anything you want if you charge it. And um, the bank's going to see if you can afford that monthly payment, but they're not going to figure out if, you know, this is a good purchase for you or if it's going to harm your other long-term financial goals. Mm. Um, so if you rely on that credit and build a lifestyle you can't afford, it's easy to build like a house of cards. And, and we, I can see it with our own family. We just, we make decisions. My son's cell phone broke. We went, my wife took it in. She was sold a bill of goods and my son came home with a $600 cell phone. <laughs> yeah. And I'm exactly. like, but and it's only $20 you know a month, Holly. Yeah, a lot of those phones, people are actually making payments on them. And when you think about how absurd that is, I mean, it's really nuts that it's we crazy. created lifestyles that are just built on, you know, slavery, making that monthly payment forever. And I was already paying insurance to insure another expensive phone that would have covered the price anyway. And we'll fix that. Just we didn't communicate it very well. But... I can only imagine how many people are out there because you have to have a phone, right? And you have to have a car. And we then go talk to the people at the car dealer and they're not going to be dishonest. Right. Talk to us. What are some other common mistakes we're making? Just middle-class Americans, the average Joe, what are we doing wrong? Um, Well, there are lots of things. Uh, First of all, if you look at how much we're spending on cars as a percentage of our income, it's ridiculous. The first quarter of 2016, according to the newest state of the automotive finance market study from Experian, the average new car payment is $503 a month. Mm. Um, The average new car loan is more than $30,000 and for 68 months. Oh, wow. And when you think about the fact that the average household income is somewhere in the mid $50,000, that's absolutely absurd. Um, you know, you mentioned cell phones. I talked to a friend the other day whose family has a $300 cell phone payment every month, but they're like struggling to, to pay their bills. And I said, can't you, um, can't you change plans? Well, we really need unlimited data is what she said. I mean, people don't think about these things in relation to their actual lives. <laughs> we assume we need it and yeah. we do anything to get it. And then we struggle in all the aspects of our lives that are important. And if, if, 
you know, if everyone could go through kind of what you went through and had that aha moment, it might be handy. It's just, you know, if all of a sudden we had to come up with an extra $300 a month in order to save, you know, our child or do something really, really important, we would probably be able to see clearly that we maybe don't need all the data. Well, I think that I think the the biggest problem, the broad problem, is that nobody thinks about the long term. We're all in it for today or this week or this month or even this year, but um, we don't think about. You know, I know so many people who want to help their kids pay for college, but they aren't saving for college. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Those years go by fast, and all of a sudden they're going to be there, and they're not going to have a dime saved. Or they want to take that family vacation every year, but they don't. They didn't bother to set up a savings account to save, you know, $100 a month. Or they want to retire early, but they're not really contributing to their 401k or they're contributing very little. I mean, it's all about just thinking about what you really want in life and then taking steps to do it. And if you don't do it, chances are you're not going to get what you want in life. Right. And then, but you know what? Then we'll just get student loans. (laughs) <laughs> and our child then then we didn't do what we were going to do anyway. Our child may have thought right. that we were, and now they're taking out a student loan, and they're starting exactly. their life then, with debt. Right, and then they're going to learn that the exact same thing, that whatever they can't afford that they can charge, and then they can just make payments on it forever. I mean, it's a, it's a very bad cycle, but it's something that most people are doing. Oh, yeah. And when you're not doing it, when you're living a debt-free lifestyle and when you don't have nice things, you're the, you're the outsider. Man. It's very, it's very strange. It, it is strange. And it's, I, I think what, what you're teaching us, too, is that you got to be different. you got to go almost – got to swim upstream instead you of you know, keep pretending like it's okay to keep swimming the way we're swimming. Let's take sure. a break and come back, Holly. Have you go through some of your 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 solutions, some of the, the reasons why we're broke, continue talking about that, and what are some of the fixes? What are some of the things we can do to turn this all around? Again, we're speaking with Holly Johnson from the website clubthrifty.com, clubthrifty.com. She's going to help us stop spending and start living. Wouldn't that be great to live life on your own terms? We'll be right back, helping you uh, live longer and hopefully with more of your own money. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends. Today we're talking about your finances and how we may be upside down. And it's probably our thinking that's driving this weird situation where the average home is carrying about $15,000 worth of credit card debt. Joining us is Holly Johnson. She's a financial expert, award-winning writer who is obsessed with frugality, budgeting, and travel. And what I love, too, is she's teaching us about the impact that all of this has on our kids. Your kids are watching how you spend and how you save. Your kids, if you make about 4000 a month and your car payment, the average car payment is $550, you are, and you maybe have two of you with car payments, you're spending 25% of your income on a car. That's crazy. Now, 
that doesn't even include gas or no. insurance or and insurance either. and right and <laughs> getting it's a nice car you got to get it washed every week sure so we're upside down as we do this but you you point out on clubthrifty.com it really is about your family it's about the the model you're holding up for your kids absolutely that's honestly we're you know late 30s now but our realizations came in our 20s when we were having kids because before you have kids it's easy just to think that you know you can take care of yourself and if you're in debt you'll pay it off later but when you have kids you think about gosh how am I going to help these kids pay for college how am I going to provide for these children how am I going to give them the opportunities that they deserve Um, having kids was huge for us because it wasn't just us anymore it was all of us Mm mm-hmm and it's uh, it also changes your lifestyle. They cost more. I mean, I remember looking at each diaper as a transaction. Like, is it worth the investment yet? Should we wait? Right. Yeah. Right. It's it's a big deal. And, I mean, even the wipies. My wife would look at me, and she's like, how many wipies did you just use to change that diaper? And I'm like, four? And she, she's like, we can't afford that. You've got to get yep. more out of each wipey. Anyway, it's so you give us five reasons why we're, we are upside down. The first one is we couldn't, we don't, we can't afford our lifestyle. We need to kind right. of get real with that, right? Yeah, I think like decades ago, people had to live within their means because they didn't have the access to cheap and easy credit that we have now. And these days, people don't even know what that means to live within your means. I mean, what does that mean? Right. Um, So we build these lifestyles based on what we want. We get the new phone with the huge monthly payment, the new car. We want to have a nice apartment. We want to go out to dinner with our friends, go to happy hour and all that stuff. And we don't ever think, does this make any sense with how much money I earn? Because most of the time it doesn't. That's why people are, you know, as you said, $15,000 in credit card debt on average. Oh. That's why people save almost nothing is because they spend with no concept of what they can truly afford. We we also you say we're selfish. We yeah. we actually we're kind of the me 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 group. Oh yeah. Absolutely. And, we and, want it now. Yeah, we want it now and dog on it if I have an impulsive desire, you better feed it. Yeah. And, and if sure. you don't feed it, there I mean there's got to be somebody that'll help me get my need met. We never learn to tell ourselves no. Yeah, this is a, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting generation, and I don't. This isn't just millennials. This is no. a lot of us, right? We've kind of. Oh gosh. We always yeah. thought we should be able to live like our parents, even if we didn't earn it, even if we exactly. weren't, you know, didn't have that same level of income. Another point that I I think is really important, and I haven't thought of it um, before, is we are wasteful. We have oh, so yeah. much junk. We have to have storage units to hold it. Yep. We're not even using it. And then we sure. toss it. Is it are these the issues that you noticed, you know, in your own financial, you know, redo and and restart? Did you have to come to a reckoning of all of these? Oh yeah. Actually, one of the first things we did is we started tracking our spending. And um, one thing I mentioned in the article is that we found out we were spending more than $1,000 on food each month. A lot of that was dining out. And um, that's the kind of waste I'm talking about. Like, we were in a hurry, so instead of making dinner, we just go out to dinner, you know, pay $40 for that mediocre meal at O'Charlie's or whatever. But over the course of a month and a year, that adds up to so much money, and it's just wasteful. With just a little planning, 
you can waste less money on things you're not even really enjoying. You mm. can buy less. You can learn to reuse things. You can learn to repurpose things. Um, all those little changes can make a huge difference. It's so true. How many times have I, like, I, I buy my phone, I buy my screen protector, I keep my, I, I take care of it, I have one charger that lasts me a long time, and I, I notice even with my kids, they're just, they're going through every part of it so quickly, and I'm thinking, we need to teach you guys how to how to conserve, like how to save, how to, we don't have to have 500 chargers. Let's just have three and everyone share. And they look at me like I'm crazy. Uh, right. One other point that I think was super important um, is the fact that we keep blaming everyone else for why we are in debt. What do you mean by, you know, kind of losing the blame game? Well, how many people do you know who are angry at their boss that they can't get a raise or that their raise wasn't as good as they wanted last year, but yet they spend every penny they make regardless. Right. So like all the time we're blaming all these other people. We didn't get a raise from our boss. You know, I pay too much in taxes. This is ridiculous. And when we do that, we give up the power to control what we do have some power over, which is our own spending, our own budgeting, our own judgment, um, keeping our bills in line we have power, but we give it away when we blame all of our circumstances on other people. So true. And I guess to fix this and to right side and, you know, and move us back upward, how do we, uh, I guess we just do the opposite, right? We manage our lifestyle. We, we become a little, I guess, more selfless instead of selfish. We watch our waste. What other tricks or tools do you teach on clubthrifty.com that might help us you know, get, get our lives back here? Well, I mean, one big thing that we do every month, and this is um, a huge topic of interest on me. I actually just authored a book on budgeting called Zero Down Your Debt. It comes out in January. Is We use a monthly budget. It's not complicated. We basically just estimate our expenses for the month and create a monthly budget and then figure out at the beginning of the month how much we're going to save, how much we're going to put in our retirement account, how much we're going to put in our vacation fund. So I think one big tip is just to be actionable about it, because when you don't, um, when you're not actionable, actionable about it, life just happens, right? Mm-hmm. You just spend whatever. At the end of the month, there's no, no money left over. You don't know where it went. But when you start the month with a clean budget, you've thought about what you want and what your family needs, then you stay on track. So mm. that's a big part of it, budgeting. Budgeting, and that's the B word that... <laughs> So many people try to avoid in a relationship or a marriage. I know doing relationship coaching, how many couples have their their marriages fall apart because they can't they can't get actionable on their money. So it's I mean I think you're right on and, and just measuring it right, just keeping a tally of where it's going, it will become more obvious to you what you can get rid of or fix. Well, here's the thing about budgeting that people don't realize. People think it's restrictive and that it's going to take away from you. But budgeting is actually how to get what you want in life. Because when you're not wasting money on things you don't want, you can save for the things that you do. Like when I create a monthly budget this month and next month, we're going on two vacations. That's in my budget because I planned for it and I saved for it and it's in my budget. Budgets don't have to be a bad thing. They don't have to be... take away from your life in a lot of ways they give you what you what you want yeah power control and your dreams really and family time and and effort that's one of the headlines it says on your site welcome to club thrifty life 
uh, live life on your own terms, stop spending, start living. Yeah. Heaven forbid. Exactly. Well, we appreciate the insight. I, I truly, Holly, think it's, uh, I think you're dead on. We are so upside down with very basic principles that could be fixed. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. You bet. Everybody go check out clubthrifty.com. Great principles and a wonderful blogging site as well as other articles she's written about. Also, they get into travel as well and how to travel on a budget. Fun stuff, folks, helping you live longer and really find your life. Let's start living, for heaven's sakes. It might take a little money, but it also could just take a little saving. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We are going to throw it down uh, to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer Linton and Jason Shepard today. Hello, gentlemen. My day just got better. Good Why? Morning. Miley Cyrus. Uh, you lo- I know you love Miley. <laughs> In fact, I saw you walk by with your Miley t-shirt on today. Oh, is that what you thought it was? <laughs> I miss party in the USA, Miley. <laughs> I do, too. Old, innocent... Party in the USA, Miley. That is such a good song. It is. You you don't like Wrecking Ball? <laughs> I I I pretty much yeah. I pretty much stick with Party in the USA yeah. when it comes to my Miley Cyrus. It's just kind of weird. I mean, she's on a big Wrecking Ball. My wife won't <laughs> let me weird. watch it. Yeah. Isn't she on the uh, the the Voice now? Isn't she on the newest season of The Voice? Oh, is she? I think so. You're our entertainment beat reporter. No, I'm pretty sure you she's, tell me. I think she uh, and Alicia Keys are joining wow. um, the guy from Maroon 5, Adam Levine, and uh, Blake Shelton. Wow. I've never watched that show, by the way, yet I know every host that's on it. I now, wonder if, if you were Jerem Jordan, Jason Shepard, you would bust out in Alicia Keys lyrics, this girl is on fire right now. Yeah, but Jerem's not here. Yeah. Do, you, do you want to try it, Jace? No, you just know, don't. I, I don't want to leave anything for posterity's sake. <laughs> You don't want your kids to have to deal with that. How nice of you. Always thinking of the littles. Hey, have you guys been watching the Olympics still? Too much. Yeah. Too much so. Apparently we've lost some swimmers. They the the swimmers can't uh they can't leave the country until they talk to the police. Well, unless your name's Ryan Lochte. He's Lock- already he, home. Who's in America? He, he got out of there so fast, didn't he? Yeah. What a strange it's strange weird. Not, yeah. situation that's playing out. I, I, you know what I think? It, I think it's the green water. <laughs> I think it's affecting them. Just blame, blame it on, blame it on the, the tainted water. That ain't water. Uh, they, yeah. Apparently, the police are like, we're getting some mixed stories here. There's, they've got some splaining to do. Did you guys see the pole vaulter story? Which one? Yeah. No. What are you talking about? The the pole vaulter that broke down crying during the anthem because they he was being booed. No. No, I hadn't heard this. Yeah. Oh, you haven't? No. You, you guys are into sports, though, right? Oh, Matthew. Wow. <laughs> you'll notice I, the only news I've got in sports is the pole vaulting news. <laughs> but today, Your pole vaulting update. Today we talked to Ed Stone, who's down there to help coach Jared Ward, who's running the marathon this Sunday. Mm-hmm. And Ed was talking about he was in the, the stadium but I guess the, the French pole vaulter was going against the Brazilian pole vaulter, and he got booed. So it was because he was going against the, the, the home country The guy. home country. And I guess it upset him, and then he kind of gave like a down signal to everyone in the, the stadium. Like, like, quit taunting me, you're all losers. 
And then I think he even called them like third world country people or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then he, then he got booed again and he didn't do very well because they were in his head, right? I mean, like how many times have I seen you two behind a free throw bo- backboard with your shirts off, grabbing your belly, trying to distract the shooter? But yeah. they don't pay attention to you. No, no, no. You gotta, you gotta. If you're, if you're a real athlete, you gotta, you gotta focus in on on the task at hand. Yeah. The pole yeah, vaulter started crying. But you know, crying. here's the deal: if you knew they were already against you, don't egg them on. Don't that, egg them on. You just can't do that. That's right. That's right. You, you're you're asking for more trouble by egging them on, knowing. I mean, it's the home country guy. Now, yeah, they shouldn't be doing that. Right. But don't don't make it worse. They should be nice. Except, and Ed was in the stadium, and he said it really wasn't that bad. He compared it to like it was nowhere near a BYU Utah game <laughs> in booing. But how safe was it? Was, uh, it? was the safety level high? He though? said there was. They weren't throwing bottles or anything. It was fairly safe. Well, thank goodness for that. And I think honestly, the guy shouldn't have been afraid. He's he had a huge, you know, what a fifteen foot pole. He could have done whatever he wanted, right? Just start whacking people with it. He could have just used the pole vault to get out of the arena. Yeah. Just, like, jump out of the arena. Wouldn't that be fun to, like, see a guy just run? style. <laughs> you know how you'll see, like, a, a runner, a marathoner, just practicing his marathon, running? running. Wouldn't it be great to, like, have the pole vaulter just pole vaulting down the street? <laughs> Do you think that'd be fun? That's crossing. a visual. I, I have to be honest with you. That's Cross- a visual I have never had before. And that's good, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I know. I, I just came up with that, like, right then. Have you watched Pole Vaulting Fails? Oh, those are great. <laughs> on YouTube? Yeah. I, it's hard for me to watch them. Did you see Anything the... and then add fails into it, you know you're going <laughs> to laugh. Did you see the Geico commercial with the pole vault that was really the pool the pool cleaner tool? <laughs> no. no. That's a good one. It's, it's one of my favorite Geico commercials. I like the Marco Polo one a lot. Oh, I did. Scusa, scusa. Yo soy Marco Polo. Get out of my pool. That is awesome. You guys still doing your show, though, right? Uh, yes. Yes, yes what, we are. What, what are you going to be talking about today? Oh, man. You know how patience is a virtue? Uh-huh. That's probably one of the most overused <laughs> phrases in all of the English language. Yeah. Yeah. I, by the way, I just met patience. Especially She's a great in the lady. LDS culture, right? Right. Well, guess what? BYU fans are going to need a huge measure of patience. Why? Because I don't think the Big 12 expansion thing is happening anytime soon. Oh. What would you say? I'll tell you why. Matt, if it didn't <sighs> happen right away. I would be so mad at you too. <laughs> <laughs> I would be ticked. Well, what else is new? Seriously. That, yeah. this, that's called a bait and switch. That's mm-hmm. illegal in marketing, you guys. I'm telling you what. There are some things that have been said by one school president that has a vote in this whole Big 12 ordeal. <sighs> Okay. That have just made me think, okay, everybody just needs to slow the roll. Yeah. But how long do we really have to wait? I had already I had already bought new license plates. <laughs> you got your bumper sticker, your big yeah. twelve sticker. Target. You've already you've already contacted the advertising department to get your billboard put up. Exactly. Yeah, welcome to Big Twelve Country. <laughs> yeah. Uh, exactly. On the way to the U, I was gonna post it down there. Uh okay, so that's gonna be a sad day on the show today. Anything else on the show? Well it doesn't necessarily need to be sad. It just it's, means it demands patience. It just yeah. Okay. There are more and more signs that are pointing to the Okay, this isn't going to happen nearly as fast as we thought it was going to happen. <sighs> what else is on the show? Not in, actual, our time, not in our time, Matt. Actual football, Matt. 
Oh, Remember? Wow. <gasps> like, I know we're all fixated oh, on the Big like, 12. Like real football. There's okay. actual football being played right now in Lavelle Edwards Stadium, a closed scrimmage. <laughs> cool. Scrimmage number two. We'll talk to tight ends coach Steve Clark, why he says there are up to six different guys who could be the starting tight end on September 3rd. Holy cow. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of tight ends. Mm-hmm. Also, Maddie Lyons is on the show. She uh, rocketed home one of the more memorable goals in all of college soccer a few seasons ago. And she has a certain boyfriend that may or may not be trying to make the roster on the Kansas City Chiefs. Ooh. My team, by the way. Ooh. That's right. That is your team. My son's my team. team, too, also. Oh, really? Very yeah. nice. Yeah. He, it, he is elite. Ooh, now there's a tease. Ooh. For those who followed the show, you may know who he's talking about. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Gosh. Okay. You guys got a great show. I'm going to let you go. We're ready to go, man. Remember, we are here for you. I'll be the guy out with doing the pole vaulting practice in the front of the studio. Okay. Good just luck, don't, gentlemen. Just don't end up on YouTube, okay? I won't. Don't I'll, forget. Uh, no. It's education week. There's a lot more people around. Oh, yeah, totally. I'm wearing a helmet. I'm good. Look, I got to eat my fruit roll-up. <laughs> good luck, gents. Okay. Take care. Bye. Yeah, okay, bye. Wow, that's cool. I think that's a really, not even just a great visual. Hey, if somebody can can do like marathon walking, swiveling their hips, and they allow that on the streets, I mean, that's kind of provocative. I saw you coming in, Jeff, today, race walking. I'm fast. Your hips were like flying. I think I smelled smoke. I had a hula hoop on as well. It was amazing. So if that can all go down, why can't... I just go practice pole vaulting. I don't see the problem. Uh, One story we really wanted to get to for you today because we know so many of you uh, love the chili eating competitions around the world. Well, listen to this. Chili eating competition turns up the heat at the World Curry Festival in Canberra. It's not often you see grown women and men breaking a sweat in the dead of winter in Canberra, Australia, but 20 brave souls did exactly that as they hoed into some scorching hot chilies, all in the hope of being crowned the winner of Canberra's chili eating contest. Armed with liters of milk for tempt, uh, you know, to douse the flames, they chowed down on chilies that got progressively hotter. The rules were simple. If the contestants could uh, sip, take a sip of milk, regurgitated or passed out or called an ambulance, they were disqualified. Any of those things disqualified you. The winner received a $100 voucher to a local restaurant, and the losers died. No, they received a glass of milk and a pat on the back. We actually have audio from the event, because we and video, by the way. We always like to bring video in. It's, it's fantastic. Listen to this. It's not so bad. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's more tingly than hot. <laughs> Man, that's ugly. That is ugly. Man, it sound those voices sounded familiar. I don't remember, but I don't know. Just a couple people down in Australia. Hey, as we end the show, we always like to end on a hero note, and there was a wonderful example of uh, heroism in the Olympics. Abby D'Agostino of the United States assisted Nikki Hamblin of New Zealand after a collision during the women's 5,000-meter round one uh, heat two on day 11 at the Rio Olympics. What a great picture. Uh, Abby D'Agostino may have had one of those most inspiring moments. After a collision, uh, one of the racers from New Zealand fell down. 
the 24-year-old distance runner, in a remarkable case of Olympic spirit, stopped, Diagostino stopped, and gave aid to the fallen rival and um, finishing the race herself uh, despite and helped her finish the race. It's, again, what the Olympic spirit is all about, right? We see them racing. We see them wanting to do everything they can to beat each other. But then there's the day that somebody gets hurt. Diagostino stopped to check to see if the Olympic rival could be helped off the ground. And the selfless move quickly caught the notice of the Olympic broadcasters who commented on their show about her sportsmanship. Uh, in the end, Diagostino's uh, ankle was injured. And uh, it eventually made it so she collapsed to the ground and she couldn't uh, finish. So, but she did get back up on her feet and they walked to the finish line. Heroes, folks. Everybody, we can all be a hero. Sometimes it's just being willing to stop in the busy world that we all live in and giving somebody a hand up. Let's make it a goal today to go be a hero for somebody, especially the people we love, the people we care about in our homes. Let's be the best we can be so they can see a great example. Until tomorrow, we'll be back with more ideas, more tools, more information to help you live longer and see the good in the world. Take care of each other. We'll talk again tomorrow.